How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and we are finally into the dawn of X proper here. This is X Lapsed, episode 13. We are done with Hox Pox, and we're into docs. As always, we've got a lot to talk about today, so uh, let's get right into it. This is X-Men number one, December 2019 cover date. Uh, you might want to call it X-Men volume five, number one. You might want to call it X-Men... LGY number 645 Um, Yeah, this is the only issue of X-Men To my knowledge, at least That came packing with a legacy number So Okay, let's start there Um, It may be Completely apparent to those listening But I'm I'm a fairly anal guy When it comes to my comics And how I Store them And how I Pack them And Oof, I mean, we have some storage woes here, right? We've got a new volume of X-Men, but it comes with a legacy number. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of these legacy numbers. I love straightforward legacy numbers, so if this came out as X-Men Volume 1, number 645, I'd be all over it. But, uh, I mean, we got two different numbers here. We got different volumes. We dropped the uncanny, uh... I mean, Uncanny, now this was the last of the Marvel Legacy books to reboot. Uh, This is probably, what, 2012, 2011, 2012-ish? It was right around the time of the New 52, maybe a little bit afterwards. Uh, They, you know, they canned the original volume, started new number ones. Seems like we get a new number one of Uncanny almost every single year. So we get all these, like, weird extra volumes of Uncanny. Then all of a sudden, Uncanny X-Men number 600 comes out. So it's like, okay, so we back into the regular numbering? Well, no. A couple months later, Uncanny volume 4 ships with a new number 1. And that that goes for a whopping 19 issues. Then after the blue and gold mess, we get Uncanny volume 5 with another number 1, but that one comes with legacy numbers, right? So that one starts issue 1 of volume 5 is actually legacy number 620. And I remember explaining this to uh, to Reggie during one of our episodes of Comics Talk. I just don't remember which one. We get Uncanny Volume 5, number 1, right? We take that all the way up to Uncanny Volume 5, number 16, which was Legacy number 635, right? Okay, then next we get Uncanny Volume 5, number 17. That had a Legacy number of 639. So what happened to 636, 637, and 638? Well, those are attached to the War of the Realms miniseries, Uncanny X-Men 1 through 3. The hell is this? I, I mean, I guess it's a good move by Marvel to hook the completionists and, you know, to reading their, their boring Thor story, but such a disaster. So now we, we wrap up that volume just a couple issues after that, and now we drop Uncanny from the title, and for this issue only, we keep the Uncanny Legacy number going with 645. Where the hell do I file this? Do I do I file this with my uncannies? Do I start a new volume overall? 
what do I do with this? And, and sadly, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. And, uh, I'd apologize, but I mean, I, I, it's, it's probably just something too silly to apologize for, but, uh, I'll stop complaining about that for now here. And then we'll just get, we'll, we'll just get right back into the credits. Okay. So it's uncanny. Oh no, it's not uncanny. It's just X-Men number one or whatever. December 2019 cover date. The story is called Pax Krakoa, written by Jonathan Hickman, pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, inks by Jerry Alla- Alan Gillen, Alan Gillen, colors Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, hey, there's a familiar name, design Tom Muller, another familiar name, and our editors are the same, Bis- Bisa, White, and Sabalski. This was a $5 book, hit the shelves on October 16th, 2019, and uh, I actually picked this issue up the day after that. On the uh, Thursday And this was at a point where the closest shop to my house Had already sold out of all the, you know, the real cover For, you know, the the original cover The cover A uh, for this issue So I was stuck getting a variant And I'm not a huge fan of variants Uh, I don't like... I I feel like if we over-rely on variants We're just... uh, yeah, we're you know we're inflating a bubble, and at the same time we're making the comics a little bit less uh, identifiable. You know, we're not going to get another you know coming of Galactus cover. You know, we're just getting these weird uh, pinup covers, and then we get the baby covers and all this stupid stuff. But the cover I got stuck with, we have Cyclops, Jean, and Wolverine popping out of a cake, which uh, uh, maybe I owe Scotty Young a, an apology because this is even dumber than than the baby covers. Uh, I am still on the lookout for an original cover uh, version, if I can find it on the cheap. I'm not going to pay another five bucks for it. But, uh, yeah, I actually picked this up like an hour or two before hopping on a plane back to New York and kind of just sat there on my desk for a week or so. I want to say, I want to say I recorded an episode of a show in between, you know, picking this up and actually taking off that day. Uh, It might be somewhere in the archives. Uh, Maybe if I remember, I'll link to it. Anyway, let's get to it. We open up in Flashbackland, where a young Scott Summers is too scared to open his eyes, lest he let loose his optic beams. He's assured that he's safe, and so he does. He looks at Professor Xavier through his ruby, t- ruby quartz specs and is happy that he can see again. And Charles is all, oh yes, and oh the things I can show you. We get a page to introduce our roster, so let's meet them. Cyclops, of course. Storm. Polaris. Magneto. Cecilia Reyes, Jean Grey, Havoc, Vulcan, the third Summers brother, Wolverine, the young Cable, Prestige, who's uh, Rachel Summers, I think that's a a newish name for her, and uh, Corsair, that's the cast of our issue here. And then we get a double-page spread of credits, so I guess guess we're still going to eat up the pages this way, and if I recall right, because I do log these in the Excel spreadsheet every time I get the books. I don't read them, but I do log them, and I, I, I'm pretty sure every single Dawn of X book has this two-page spread of credit, so maybe I'll stop mentioning it. Who knows? Anyway, we jump right into the action, and we join Storm and Cyclops as they're infiltrating an Orcus stronghold. And uh, it kind of looks what you might picture like a final dungeon to be in a role-playing game. It just uh, it kind of screams evil. You know, you'd almost figure that other world powers, other world governments might want to step in and be like, you know, what's going on in here? 
Anyway, Storm and Cyclops warn each other to be careful while they battle their way through some Orcus-flavored sentinels. Cyclops manages to snipe one with his peepers just before it clobbers Storm. Storm, you know, she thanks him and admits that maybe she's a bit tired, uh, but then sort of twists that admission into being tired of people creating mutant-hunting robots. So, there you go. They happen across a hallway that's just crammed with Orcus security. They, uh, Storm and Cyclops, chat about progress and how they're experiencing that one giant leap from mutant kind at the moment. Cyclops then optic blasts the hallway, which, as you might imagine, really freaks the security squad out. Storm then zaps him with electricity, but uh, here's the thing. The humans aren't exactly running for the hills here. What they do instead is uh, they fall back, almost in a formation. This leads Cyclops to assume that they're... Uh, that these, these goofs are probably maintaining a position in order to protect something, so they feel like they're getting closer to whatever they're getting to. Nearby, Magneto and Polaris tear their way in through the roof, the latter of which then entangles the Orcus folk in cables and wires and stuff to get them out of the way. Magneto then joins Cyclops as they're stood before this place of extreme interest. Uh, Cyclops blasts, attempts to blast his way through, however, the door is made of vibranium, so... It's up to Magneto to play locksmith. We shift scenes inside a lab here, and we meet a Dr. Mars. An Orcus geek warns that the X-Men are on their way. Uh, Mars, he's a little more worried about their data than any uh, potential loss of human life, it would seem. Yes, how much redundancy there is between the Orcus Forge and the Orcus Hub. And if I can stay awake long enough, we learn that there's an 80% overlap. And the story's not boring me, but the Orcus thing is a little bit dull. Mars suggests that they can make that they ought to make the ultimate sacrifice and do whatever they can to maintain their data and their work. He injects himself, and I'm assuming the others, with a syringe, and more on that in just a bit. Actually, right now. Cyclops and the gang manage to make their way inside the lab, only to find themselves attacked by apes. Apes with PhDs, so uh, those Orcus scientists have injected themselves with something that, you know, slips them down a rung on the evolutionary ladder, it seems. Magneto tells the others to go on ahead because he'll deal with the apes. Inside the lab, there are a slew of stasis tubes. All but one have a mutant within. And the last one, however, is a pretty strange thing. It's uh, what appears to be a young girl with many of the aesthetic trappings of the librarian from X to the Third Power from, uh, you know, Hoxpox, year 1000. So, perhaps a post-human in, in our time? Storm recognizes her as being from the Vault. And I, I know I've, you know, I know I've seen or read an X-Men story about a Vault forever ago. So, maybe we know this girl? I'm not entirely sure. Now, this post-human girl kind of freaks out and manages to blip away before the X-Men can get all that much out of her. As for the rest of the mutants saved, well, they, they look like generic mutants. Um, kind of like we might, what we might see in the background of a Morrison-era issue. None of them really, you know, in particular, stand out. Though, I, I probably worth mentioning that there is a sort of blocky, rotund one that reminds me a little bit of one of the mutants that attacked the librarian back in the preserve in Powers of X number 6, so... Maybe there's something, you know, to that. From here, you know, Magneto, he, he takes care of the apes, of course, and uh, from here we head back to Krakoa. The rescued mutants are escorted to Dr. Cecilia Reyes for evaluation. Storm offers to help Reyes with the process and makes a face that I swear Gary Frank drew. 
Cyclops asks if Storm's sure she's up to it. After all, they just came off a mission, and, hell, they were already tired to begin with. Storm gives the big thumbs up, and so Cyclops decides to head home. But first, we see a group of mutant children who are absolutely pleased as punch that Magneto's back. The kids all want to join Magneto on his next mission, but he tells them that the only reason he fights is so they'll never have to. Magneto is something of a, like a rock star here. It's a pretty, it, it's quite odd to see. Now, Polaris, who is looking on, suggests that this is a bit embarrassing to see her father this way. Cyclops dismisses it. He's like, eh, he's earned it. Let him have it. The two, Cyclops and Polaris, they leave the scene, but we stay with them. And they have a kind of weird chat. Cyclops starts talking about how he felt when he had his son. You know, that whole tropey, you know, bringing an innocent into this messed up world sort of thing. Though, I suppose when, you know, a constantly hunted mutant says it, it might carry a little bit more weight. Now, Cyclops invites Lorna back to his place because it's going to be a big old Summer's family reunion, and her on-again, off-again Alex will be there. Lorna declines the offer, giving us a line that kind of, like, sums up how I'm feeling about this whole Dawn of X endeavor. She, She says, when the past is the past, and I'm not still finding my way in a new land that she'll come. So, yeah, I kind of feel those feels there, uh... I want to know what the past is, and uh, I'm still finding my way. I don't think she meant it in that way, but uh, that's how I'm going to take it. Now, Cyclops talks a little bit more about this giant step forward, and uh, I might be taking this a little bit literally, but it almost feels like he and Lorna might have a like a thing going on here. He 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 talks to her about you know everything he might have lost and everything he held on to and everything he now has. He says, "I held on, and look, I have you." And your father and my family, my boy. So unless this is all like a like a kumbaya, hey, we're all mutants and we're all pals sort of thing. Uh, I mean, I have you, Polaris. That's uh, I don't know. That caught me a little off guard. Um, though I again might be reading too much into it. Anyway, Cyclops finally steps through the Krakoan gateway to head home. And uh, I gotta say, before we move on here, I'm really, really enjoying these uh, X-Men centric scenes. It gives me this very strange feeling like I'm seeing old friends again. It's uh, it's it's really cool. I, I really enjoy it. But on that note, who's ready to go back to the friggin' Orcus Forge? Not me, but we gotta. We see the satellite, and it's still missing its mother mold head as many ships approach. Inside, we see Killian Devo, who is uh, the director or the general or the sergeant or whatever. He laments the loss of the Mother Mold head from whichever issue of Hoxbox that was. He then chats up Karima What's-Her-Face, and they do a pretty good job filling us in on, well, stuff. Uh, you know, like the makeup of Orcus, use of various minds from the Marvel acronym farm, you know, some of whom might be a little less savory than others, but you know how it is. You gotta keep the eyes on the prize, which, uh, I guess snuffing out mutants by any means necessary is more important than... Associating with a shield guy or an aim guy or a hydra guy or a whatever guy Karima questions the wisdom of Orcus, you know, kind of hiding in plain sight Which is to say, not really hiding at all Gotta figure like a giant sentinel head floating in orbit Might solicit a response or two from the superhuman or mutant communities, right? Devo, he decides to take full blame for the whole thing And he lets uh, Dr. Gregor off the hook So it was all his fault From here... We shift scenes to Summer House, as where, of course, Scott lives, and Scott and a lot of people we're going to see. And, whew, boy, this kind of feels like we're watching an episode of The Twilight Zone here. Um, or like 
like the really mundane and happy scene you might see in a horror movie that would, you know, to just to juxtapose all the gore and fright. It's very unsettling, and we're going to talk a lot about that. First, we learn that Summer House is located on the moon. Cyclops is joined by Corsair, his father, and they chat for a bit. It seems as though uh, old Christopher Summers' spidey sense is already tingling, as is mine. Inside, Vulcan, the third Summers' brother, is grilling some meat, or burning it, if you ask Wolverine. He and Wolverine argue about how long meat ought to be cooked. You know, Wolverine wants his steak to be rare. Vulcan ultimately comes around and tells Logan that he'll leave his steak rare. Well, medium rare, anyway. I'm, I'm a medium well guy myself, but uh, then again, I also smother my steak in sauce, so what do I know? Elsewhere, Starjammer Raza and Kid Cable are comparing firearms. Little Nate is real keen on Raza's gear and asks his mom, Jean Grey, if it'd be cool if they swap. Jean, who looks very domesticated, tells Nate to set the table first. Chad, or Chad, enters the scene looking for some sweetener for his tea. And yeah, this is very weird. Uh, I feel like almost uncomfortable watching. It's like almost like voyeuristic watching this. It's strange. Very strange. Finally, it's dinner time. Hepzibah, she chats Rachel up about her spiky gear in a kind of weird bit. She then refers to Rachel as a hard girl and so offers her a hard drink. Have I said weird enough yet? Um... Scott and Chris finally enter the scene, and it's just in time, because Jean informs them that Gabriel is just about through burning their meat. During dinner, Corsair is presented with a gift. Havoc hands over a Krakoa flower, which they explain is a gateway which Corsair can plant in the Starjammer's Arboretum, and so they can stay in contact. Corsair gives the camera a big chuckle-headed grin and says he loves it. Vulcan goes on, and on, and on and on about the importance of family before apologizing that he lacked a sufficiently strong male role model during his formative years. Hmm, I don't, I don't want to prove Magneto right here, but I'm telling you, my other shoe drop radar is pinging, and it's pinging really hard. Okay, on to an info page. Can't forget about those. This time, it's a couple of schematics of Summer House. We get a slightly more specific location for it, and it is the blue area of the moon. And isn't that where the damn boring Inhumans live? I hope we don't see them anytime soon. Anywho, we see the setup, and we also get a look at the floor plan. It looks like there are nine bedrooms at Summer House. The first one belongs to Cyclops. The second one belongs to Wolverine for some reason. The third is Jean Grey. Hmm. Fourth is Vulcan, fifth is Havoc, the sixth is empty, so uh, maybe there's another Summer's sibling out there to be revealed. Mm, Maybe not. The next one is Cable, the next one is empty, and the final one is Rachel, so I guess that's the kid's wing. I don't... why does Wolverine get a room here? It's a little bit weird, unless we're going to go right back into the love triangle thing straight away. Um, I'll admit, I do remember seeing something making the rounds on social media, probably, I don't know, the spring, um, suggesting that, like, Wolverine and Scott might have, might have a bit of a fling going on, but, uh, you know, those are the kind of stories that that usually find their way making the rounds of social media, regardless of whether or not there's any truth to it. I guess we'll find out more as we go through, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, uh, at the very end of the episode as well. Later on, we join Cyclops at the sink. He's doing the dishes with some very weird and gross Krakoan goop. 
Corsair enters the scene and he's pretty grossed out and I, I totally feel him there. From here though, we get a very weird, I mean, have I used the word weird enough today? A uh, conversation. Corsair, he's, you know, he's taking this all in and he says he's worried about Scott and his brothers and, you know, some, something ain't right here, right? You know, right? Feels weird. Uh. Cyclops assures him that everything is peachy keen and explains why this way is better than any other way they've tried in the past. Corsair tells his son he's a good boy, which, this is weird. <laughs> very, very weird. Our last stop for the issue is back to the Orcus Forge. Devo meets up with Dr. Grego, who I feel looks really pretty great under a Lionel Yu's pencil. Uh, she actually doesn't even look like anything like, like Lionel Yu draws. She's uh, much softer looking and without any of the, you know, the hash lines you might expect from a Yu character. Anywho, they chat for a bit, and Devo asks why she didn't attend her husband's funeral. She kind of dismisses the notion and suggests that, she, that he will live on in Orcus's work. All the while, though, she's working at like a console, at a machine that's blasting a concentrated red beam into just a little alcove of this machine. Once she's done blasting, she reaches in to where the beam was going and retrieves a little red crystal. We close out with her suggesting that she knows a way to bring her husband back. And that's where we leave it. The next book we'll discuss is Marauders number one, but let's catch our breaths and talk about this. Okay, first off, nothing at all against Lionel Yu. I enjoy his work, but I really wish we had Laraz or Silva still on the book. Um, not that this feels like a lesser effort or anything. I've just grown like really comfortable with their styles up to this point. It uh, it's hard to see other uh, other pencils. You know, in in this new X-Men landscape here I will say that I'm happy Lionel isn't still trying to cram his signature Into every page he draws anymore I remember back around the turn of the century His signature would pop up on almost every damn page So that's nice that that's not there anymore Another silly thing before we get into the meat here The damn numbering <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just the sort of idiot who loses sleep over this I, I shouldn't I really shouldn't I should get over it but it bothers me. Um, I don't know if, if 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 I'm if I'm describing something that explain it that bothers you as well. I'm sorry that we're we're also damaged. <laughs> I really shouldn't be worrying about that. But with that out of the way, let's really talk about it. Stop me if you heard this one, but this was weird. Um, I wish that I wrote down some of my thoughts from the first time I read this last fall, because you know I. I as I've explained here, I read it fresh. You know, I didn't read Hawks, didn't read Pox. Hell, I didn't read anything with an X on it since, like, X-Men Gold number three. You know, back in 2016, 2017. It's been a while, right? I, I do remember being totally out of my element, but mostly enjoying it. Uh, not enough to actually keep reading, uh, but I, I guess I'd say I'd walked away thinking it was a net positive, so more good than bad, I guess. Um, now, in revisiting this today with a semblance of context, I enjoyed it far more, but was perhaps even more weirded out by it as well. That's a, let's take this beat by beat. Now, I've got some bullet points here, but we're going to freestyle from there. Orcus. I could take or leave him. Um, 
This doesn't feel fresh. Uh, it, this feels just like a high concept. That's a, that's the term we're using. A high concept rehash of like a whole bunch of anti mutant groups that we've seen like Skate Eight hundred times before. Eh, you know, and, and you know, over the course of our Hoxpox discussions, I did ask. Who would the X-Men fight in Dawn of X, considering all the top-tier villains are now on the same side with them? They're all allies. What it looks like we're getting is Orcus. Now, I'll do my best to reserve judgment, but, you know, all things being equal and me being honest here, the Orcus scenes were my very least favorite in this issue, and outside of year 1000, they were my least favorite in, in Hoxbox. Not a fault of the story. Because we are laying a foundation um, Maybe Maybe I just expected something different Maybe I just wanted more time to reacquaint with the X-Men You know I suppose perhaps I just need to be a little bit more patient uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes I did like the X-Men rescuing those mutants And actually getting a post-human sighting in the you know present day I want to do a little bit of research on the girl, but I'm afraid I'll wind up spoiling myself. Um, as I mentioned in the synopsis, I know there have been a couple of vaults, or probably a handful of vaults in X-History. Um, off the top of my head, there's that one with the, like, the big-eyed girl where Xavier was locked up after Onslaught. That There was that one, and then there was that one from... It was either the Peter Milligan or the Mike Carey run. I want to say Chris Pachalo drew it. This girl isn't Negasonic Teenage Warhead, is it? I, I hope not, because that's that name just annoys me. Um, now the rescued mutants were a bit uninspired in their design, though, as mentioned, I wonder if any of them were tied into the uh, you know that whole preserve scene from the year one thousand. Uh, the Cyclops and Polaris scene felt a little weird, felt a little awkward. Um, Felt like they really wanted Cyclops to deliver that monologue about his son and changing the world and whatnot, and just needed to have a sort of incredulous, like, sounding board for him to do so. Um, and was I reading too hard into things to suggest that there might be a thing between Scott and Lorna? Is that why she'd be uncomfortable around Alex and why she declined the invitation? Or maybe she's just always uncomfortable around Alex because they were, you know, they have a history. I guess we'll find out. And also, hopefully we'll find out what that history is, because search me, I don't know. On to Summer House. Now, this was an uncanny scene, wasn't it? Um, I think I've brought up Neon Genesis Evangelion before while discussing this this series, in, the, in this series of episodes here. But, you know, during that anime, which was pretty dark and heavy, there would be, like, these weird... Unreal mundane scenes of the characters living normal lives Like they'd be late for school Or they'd have just these weird little mundane bits So instead of them piloting like crazy soul-having mechs while fighting angels In these bits they would just be kids that went to school And had like awkward happy teenage lives And they'd be happy anime music And those scenes served as a perfect juxtaposition with the rest of the show And they were so different in tone that you really couldn't help but to be a little creeped out by watching them, and that is exactly how I feel reading this Summer House scene. It's very, very unsettling, and we've talked about this before. Uh, Wayne Booth wrote in early in the series here to talk about how weird it is for us as fans to see the X-Men happy and having peace, you know? Uh, but, you know, remember what Magneto said about us cynics. Uh, we're just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Or... Maybe take it a step further. Maybe we're so busy trying to find that other shoe dropping that we miss out on enjoying life. 
Is this getting meta? Am I, am I being personally attacked again? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> now, as for the scene, I don't know. I wonder what it might be like to reread it, like in a few months. Like after we get through a good chunk of Dawn of X here and just see how I receive it. I mean, will the other shoes have dropped by then? Or will I just know better? I, I don't know. It's very, very unsettling. I do like that this whole scene doesn't pass Corsair's smell test. I feel like he might be serving as like an avatar for the seasoned curmudgeonly X-Fan. You know, like we know something's up. No matter how Cyclops tries to massage it, we know. You know, we know there's something weird here, but uh, we have no choice but to let it play out. So that's exactly what we'll do. Info pages. Unless I'm forgetting any, the only info pages we got here were the Summer House schematic. And I'm 100% cool with that. I always loved it when Marvel and DC would include this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you think about the Fortress of Solitude. You get to see the, the how the fortress is set up. Uh, seeing a cross-section of the Baxter building in a Fantastic Four annual. I mean, this is classic comic stuff. Just with a stylized coat of paint, and I cannot hate it. In fact, I, I really like it. Also... In addition to looking really cool and giving us, you know, a nice little glimpse, it also gives us a lot to chew on. Why is Wolverine shacked up with the Summers? Why aren't Scott and Jean sharing a room? Is Wolverine being between Scott and Jean symbolic of anything? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that during the feedback. Who's going to fill these empty rooms? Because, I mean, looking at them, they're basically Chekhov's bedrooms, right? You know, they, weren't, they wouldn't be shown here if they weren't going to come to play. So they're eventually going to have to be addressed, right? I, I would assume so. So wrapping this issue all up with Orcus and Dr. Gregor was, was good. Um, since Orcus and Gregor are, in my opinion, the weakest part of the issue, the cliffhanger really didn't hook me quite as hard as perhaps it should have. But, you know, I'm still down. I'm still good with it. I'm still down to learn more, and uh, I'm open to having it all fleshed out for us here. Overall, this was a heck of an opener to the Dawn of X era. Got lots of questions, not so many answers, which uh, I was expecting not to get so many answers. Uh, but at least we didn't start with a scene featuring Maria Hill and S.H.I.E.L.D., like I swear the last few volumes of X-Men did, so <laughs> net positive just for the lack of S.H.I.E.L.D. So that's a good thing. Um, but that... That's X-Men, Volume 5, Number 1, Legacy Number, whatever the hell it is, and uh, I dug it. I'm happy, and uh, let's uh, hop back into the mailbag before we go. First, a couple of short messages here. Uh, one from Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom. He says, I've really been enjoying the show. Pat Sampson on Facebook says, really enjoying listening. And thank you both so much for listening. Uh, I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this new X-Men era, and... And this just goes to show how easy I am. Uh, <laughs> I get an attaboy every now and again, and I am just set. You know, I am very, very easy. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for reaching out and commenting. I'm so happy that you're enjoying this, and uh, I hope you're uh, you're sticking with it. Just like I hope I'm sticking with it. So uh, thank you all. Thank you. Thank everybody, actually. Uh, next, our friend Evan Bevins, at Evan underscore Bevins. He said... I had trouble getting excited about the year 1000 stuff, but I felt like it did pay off. I think the idea that Mora and Charles are resigned to the X-Men always losing and still fighting the good fight is a quintessential X-Men theme. The ethics of not telling anyone else is up for debate. 
And this is something... I'm recording these a couple of days ahead, so uh, this is something I kind of blathered on about for a while during ex- uh, episode number uh, 12. And I, you know, I still wonder about how Moore is able to make such a sweeping statement when, I mean, in a few of her lives, she died before the X-Men officially lost, you know? Uh, also, it still isn't clear to me if the events of Moore's 10th life are, like, new and, new and unique to her 10th life. Have the X-Men ever sent the Mother Mold into the sun before? And still came up short? Or is this new to Mora, you know, Mora's 10th, Mora X? If so, maybe they ought to be a little bit more optimistic about the future. I don't know. Maybe this will like make a bit more sense to me as we continue along. But um, I love the uh, food for thought. Uh, the ethics of not telling anyone, definitely up for debate. Definitely. Because, uh, I mean, you think about people who are in positions of power and what they know and what we don't. And being left in the dark... I mean, there are a couple of ways you can look at that. You know, I think there maybe there are some things we shouldn't know. Maybe there are a few things that we know too much about. But then there are things that we probably ought to know. It's uh, definitely a uh, it's definitely a thinker. You know, there's definitely a lot of meat on that bone. So, if anybody has any thoughts on that, any uh, feedback on on the uh, the morality or the ethics of uh, keeping this secret, let me know for sure. I, I definitely love to uh, hear everybody's opinion because. Frankly, my my opinion on most things is very wibbly wobbly, so maybe you can you know set me straight. <laughs> uh, we have uh, some feedback from Jason C at PSEU forty two on Twitter is regarding episode nine. I just caught up on the part of your X lapsed coverage where you saw the big reveal I teased at you earlier. Hell of a thing, huh? I only kind of sort of knew that who that character was before Hox and Pox, so I expect it was an even more of a thing for more knowledgeable readers. And yes, Jason was the one who uh, who hinted that uh, old GB was going to show up. Old Gold Balls, who uh, on other programs on this channel, I kind of <laughs> I've kind of made my uh, I've kind of made my feelings on Gold Balls clear, and the actually the most of the Bendis run, but. Uh, yeah, he, I was teased that Gold Balls was coming, so I was braced for it, but still, when I saw him, I was just like, oh man, here he is. But, uh, like I said during episode 9, Hickman, you know, he killed it. Uh, uh, Gold Balls works in this context. Uh, turned uh, a, you know, a gonad joke into a vital member of the uh, Krakoan community, and that was very, very cool. Uh, Jason will, uh, he's also going to share some thoughts about the, uh, his feelings on the fallout of Hoxpox. So I'm looking forward to that, and I will, sh- I will share them here when, uh, when those arrive. From here, we got a twofer from Damien, our friend Damien, at, at Whiter Trash on Twitter. This is, uh, the first one is regarding episode 10. He says, God, I sounded negative on the feedback this issue. I probably overstated my frustration with DOX, Dawn of X. Uh, Damien's email uh, the other day said... That he had dropped most of the books. And uh, and he continues to say, My main problem is that I can't afford to buy that many books, particularly as my finances have been curtailed by the whole 2020 thing. Also, there was a price rise on U.S. comics here in the U.K., which was out of proportion to the comparative, comparative increases in the U.S.A., which limited my options. My move away from buying all the books was not because I hated them, but because I wasn't getting enough out of them to justify paying a fortune. I do have Marvel Unlimited, though, so I can read along with you, provided you remain behind. 
I am still buying Marauders on a regular basis as it has a lot of my favorite characters in it and it has created a storyline where every issue is essential. And I tell you, that's a bit of a relief. And I didn't take your initial message as being overly negative. I, I think the comics industry is in a very strange place, right? And I also know that there's a lot of competition for, like, our comics buying dollar, our you know, or discretionary spending. There's a lot of competition out there for it. And sometimes books just don't make the cut. Unfortunately, I can't really relate to having to make such choices because I'm a, I'm a horrible addict who will sadly prioritize much of my spending around comics, even comics I won't ever get around to reading. I've tried to break the habit. I've tried to kick it. I fail every time. I failed with the X-Men. I'm back, you know. Uh, it's uh, I'm an all-or-nothing kind of guy. I wish... I could be more choosy. I wish I could let myself be. But uh, I am... I'm a dirty addict. It's just a just a problem with me. Um, I'm also glad to hear that Marauders has kept up the quality. I, I've mentioned a couple of times that out of, the, out of the entire Dawn of X lineup, I only read three books. You know, it was X-Men number one, Marauders number one, and Excalibur number one. And, and Marauders was definitely my favorite of those three. Which was very unexpected, because I was actually going to try that thing where I only pick up a certain number of books. When they announced Dawn of X, I told myself then and there, I'm only buying X-Men. You know, especially when I saw that it had a legacy number on the first issue. I was like, okay, that's going to be my book. I'm going to buy X-Men. Everything else can, you know, go go kick a cow. <laughs> I'm only buying X-Men. But then the next week, Excalibur and Marauders came out, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll check out Excalibur. But when I got to the store, I was like, I can't buy one and not the other. So I bought it. Didn't expect anything out of it, and wound up really, really enjoying it. And actually, I, I, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it next episode. Uh, back to Damien, he says, As to this issue, I love the background into the creation of the status quo of Krakoa. I particularly enjoyed the Magneto, Xavier, and Frost section. And he tells us that we will be seeing the Quiet Council graphic again, and we are. I am recording a couple days ahead of time, so yes, we've already discussed that here. And uh, yes, I found this very interesting as well. The uh, Xavier Magneto and Frost stuff. My, you know, I still have my my cynical side that thinks that maybe Xavier's using a little bit of mental prodding, but I thought this was very interesting, and I thought that the uh, the characters all acted true to what I, you know, feel they should act. Uh, back to the email here. I'm with you on the impenetrable year 1K stuff. I remember hating it as I first read Hoxpox. It does go somewhere interesting, though, and thankfully, all you need to understand is the concept of assimilation into a hive mind as similar to gaining an evolutionary advantage. And that's true. And uh, I'm not sure if it made the final cut of a recent episode, but I think I said something along the lines of, like, take this 1,000 stuff distill it down to something like a five-year-old would understand, then distill it down again <laughs> and just get on with it. Um, I This is me projecting, but I feel like this portion of the story was maybe a little bit too satisfied with itself. You know, when we're talking about godheads, it's like, oh, really? Are we doing that? Come on. Uh, back to the email here. It says, I'm also impressed with your design skills. The logo for my podcast is considerably worse. Thanks again for the fantastic podcast. Uh, thank you, Damien. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun trying to piece the uh, the art together, the cover art for the show together. I more or less took the idea from one of the latter printings of House of X number one, 
just kind of disassembled it and built it back up from there. Uh, lots of crazy, you know, inserting, cutting, pasting. I'm pretty sure the original, like, transparency piece had something like 18 layers in GIMP before I merged down. Uh, I feel like my design game overall isn't really anything to write home about, but uh, thanks to the dozens of hours I spent transforming Strikeforce Moratory covers into Moratory Monday cover art, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of a better grasp at it. And, uh, I mean, on a quick pass, like, if, if you don't look at it too sharply, it almost looks right. <laughs> so it almost looks professional. But uh, thank you so much. But uh, before I thank you overall, let's get into the second email here from Damien. This one's regarding episode 11. And he opens by uh, thanking me for uh, for promoting his show. And that that's absolutely my pleasure. I know I don't have all that big of a platform here, and my voice probably carries worse today than it has in years, but I'll do whatever I can to support folks in the community. Um, I think that it's uh, it's very important to do that, uh, because the more voices we have, uh, the better, I think. Now, back to his email. It was interesting to hear your podcast process. To illustrate my process, I'll give you a little behind the scenes. I got up this morning intended to complete my preparation for the next episode of Should I Love This Comic? I decided to check my email and was excited to see Podbean had messaged me to say I had my first download in the USA. I think that was me. Uh, this meant I had to check out the app and I noticed two new episodes of X lapsed. Well, I had to listen to them, so I had so I had to reread those two issues of Hawksbox, then listen to the episodes to comment on them both. So here I am, hours later, with no podcast prep done and some very enjoyable time passed. In X Men terms, you're clearly a John Romita Jr. and I'm an Arthur Adams. Uh, isn't that always a way? <laughs> No, it really it, it means so much to me that you're uh, that you're on board with this uh, this journey here. That is, I think that's the coolest thing ever. Um, but ain't that always the way? You know, it's part of the reason I have such a hard time being like a consumer of fandom related stuff anymore. Uh, I'm so busy putting out content, and you know, a little bit about how the sausage is made. This episode that you're listening to right now about X Men number one. It took about six hours to put together from, and that's not even including reading the issue, uh, scripting, and uh, it, it takes a while. I'm at the point where I'm actually setting an alarm and getting out of bed while it's still dark to work on these shows. Um, so I very seldom get to listen to other shows or visit comic blogs. I mean, a little bit more, you know, behind the scenes here. My notes for this issue. The notes that I'm reading from right now, my, my little bullet points and whatnot. And for many of the issues we've discussed on this show, actually have more pages than the issues themselves. Uh, so it's hard for me to consume. It's hard for me to read comics, besides the one I'm talking about. It, and I'm not complaining. I think this is like one of those grass is always greener sort of things for me, where I kind of wish I could put the hobby aside and just read. And then it's like, well, if I read them, what... what who am I going to talk about them with? You know, it's 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 a weird place to be. And, uh, yeah, this is the first time in a while that my notes have, like, started to exceed the page length of the comics themselves. Well, the joke that, that Reggie and I would tell for the uh, Cosmic Treadmill, and, and it wasn't even a joke, it was true. Uh, we did a series of episodes concerning Crisis on Infinite Earths. So it was a five-part series. Uh, ran about 12 or 13 hours total. The We would say that the uh, our script for Crisis on Infinite Earths had more pages than Crisis on Infinite Earths, and it it does, it, it actually does. We had more pages of research than there were actually pages of story. So, I guess uh, 
I guess you could take you, you 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 can't take the the something out of the something, but whatever it is. Back to Damien, he says, I really want to know more about your project management experience. If you can compare your experience to sitting around a table with your mortal enemies, you must have some stories. <laughs> yeah, project management. Now, I, I won't go too deep into this because uh, I want to let everybody get on with their day eventually. But in my experience, uh, project management is like being crammed in a room with a group of wildly insecure people who all see themselves as being the smartest and most competent person there. And I think I just described the internet. Um, Now, if you ever want to find yourself in a several-hour-long argument that is based entirely on semantics and phrasing, definitely look into getting into project management. Uh, The money's okay, though, so there is that. Got a lot of backbiting, a lot of looking out for number one. Unfortunately, not a lot of trust. Um, It's it's a weird... It's a weird uh, thing to, to get into. Back to Damien. When reading this issue, I was most struck by the fact that even before putting on the helmet, Xavier's face is not completely shown. What is Hickman hiding and why? And I totally missed that when reading this, but looking back, it's 100% true. That's very interesting. I wonder what that's all about. Or, I mean, I am a guy who looks for symbols where there might not be any, but, I mean, that's, uh, that seems kind of pointed, doesn't it? That's very interesting. That's a lot of very interesting food for thought. Um, back to Damien. You talk about missing the discourse around this issue. It probably says something about my community that I mainly saw people discussing potential sexual relationships between characters. The implication of the sinister secrets that Gene and Scott were in an open relationship led to a lot of speculation about their scenes with Wolverine. In particular, the fact that Gene gives a beer to Emma while Scott and Logan watched was read by a lot of my friends as suggesting a four-way thing. I always want more LGBT plus representation, but that seemed a step too far. Now, we, we touched a little bit on that a little earlier this very episode. Um, looking at this scene, I didn't consider any sort of commentary be, or, or symbolism being made in as far as sexual relationships, which, I mean, that's why it's so cool to get so many different points of view here. That's that's why I, I love this the feedback section here where we get to discuss these things because... I didn't see that through my prism, but I'm sure now I know people do. People did. So that's that's very interesting. I agree with you here. I think this I think that might be a step too far. Um, you know, when that rumor started hitting the social medias and, you know, our vaunted comics press sites, it felt kind of like a uh, like a baity news item, like it was baiting for it was like, rather than being an organic story beat, it felt as though it was just there to try to foment reaction, good, bad, just reaction. I, I, I mean, I, I feel kind of comf- uncomfortable opining, especially when I don't really have a hard opinion. I, I mean, my whole thing is I'm a curmudgeon. I, I want my X-Men comics to be the same as they were when I was 12. I, I, I want a lot of comics to be like I was when I was 12, so what do I know? But uh, that's definitely... Part of the reason, and maybe the main reason why I'm enjoying going into the feedback here, because that's not something I, I saw, but other people did see it, and, and maybe other people saw other things, and that's that's the kind of discussion I want to have, and that's that's part of the reason I, I want to keep doing this uh, this program. Uh, back to Damien. 
I do like Hickman's decision to focus on the resurrected characters at the party scene. Seeing Siren with Banshee or Mondo with Skin shows a level of jubilation, pun slightly intended, that wouldn't happen if they just showed the traditional X-Men. Though I'm not sure Exodus is a great character to leave with the kids. I imagine he's indoctrinating them, and not just to know how to kneel during a mass. And to which, my aching knees, yes. I, I did a lot of kneeling last week. So looking forward to next episode, mainly so I can reveal what it left me expecting and therefore why I was disappointed with Dawn of X. And ah, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts, and actually that goes to anybody listening. I want to hear your thoughts on the fallout of Hoxpox. Even time travelers, if you discover this show like several months from when it's come out, please reach out. I think uh, I think this is evergreen enough to where we can, we can keep talking about uh, our takeaways. And uh, especially, I, I did mention, I think it was last episode, that Hoxpox, I think, will be one of those, eventually it'll be like a seminal, evergreen X-Men story. It'll just always be, you know, in the top sellers list, uh, un- unless unless they really, really bone it. But uh, I think it's a uh, probably the best candidate for an evergreen X-Men book in quite some time. So definitely, if you have thoughts on it. Disappointments, optimism, all that good stuff. Let me know. Let me know. But I think that's where we'll leave it today. You know, I, I did say this was going to be a biggie, and it was a pretty uh, pretty big episode with the first issue of X-Men. But uh, I want to thank you so much for hanging out and sticking with me past Hoxpox, if in fact you have. If you would like to reach out, Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find all that stuff there, chrisandreggie.com for all the audio. But I think my voice is suitably rasped for the day, and I will uh, let you all get along with yours. So thank you so, so much for hanging out. I really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, 
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 19 of x Lapsed, where we are moving on in to the second issues of the Wave 1 Dawn of X books. And we're starting with X-Men number 2, or X-Men volume 5 number 2, or legacy number, what would it be, 646? I, I don't know. I won't even mention legacy numbers anymore, unless they show up on the cover again. Uh, so X-Men number 2, we'll just say that. January 2020 cover date. Stories called Summoner. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen. Colors by Sonny Go. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Beasel White Sobolski. Cover price is only $3.99. And I never thought I'd see the day where I said a, where I would say a comic book is only $4. But here we are. We've had uh, This is the cheapest book we've covered yet. Uh, went on sale November 13th, 2019. So let's hop right in. We open at Summer House, with Cyclops looking to draft his kids into going on a mission with him. And it doesn't take much convincing. Then again, heading out with Dad is probably a bit more fun for the Summer's kids than staring into a giant lava lamp that they're sitting next to, which looks very dull. Uh, we get a double page spread of creds, then we meet our cast for the issue, and, well, we've already met them. It's Cyclops, Prestige, and Cable. Now, the deal here is another island has been spotted somewhere in the distance, and now Krakoa itself is pulling itself toward it. It's worth noting that they can't have Doug Ramsey ask the island why it's approaching this new island since he's off in space, so I do enjoy this continuity. It's letting us know that everything's happening, (laughs) so uh, we're not wasting our time reading some of these books. So I do love the continuity. Um, It's also uh, Cyclops, uh, he takes the the full blame for giving the New Mutants the thumbs up to hop on the Starjammer to head out to uh, Shi'ar space to visit Sam. Now Cyclops here is acting a bit, I don't know, goofy dad a little bit. Kind of weird. Uh, It feels like he's kind of playing into like a suburban dad stereotype, and I'm really not sure I like it. Anyway... The summer zizzes come within sight of this new island, and it's got a volcano in the middle that looks like a more like a gate to hell, complete with like a Lovecraftian horror tentacly thing spewing from the mound. Now they land, and the kids point out what a great job Scott did landing the jet, which for some reason prompts him to talk about how much therapy he's endured over the years, which feels forced and goofy. Uh, it's like I almost expect there to be a laugh track or like... Like, you know, put his hands on his hip, you know, cock to the side and look at the camera. Am I supposed to feel like he's out of character, or am I just being hypersensitive here? I don't know. Now, Rachel does like a teleswipe of the area and only comes back with uh, readings of normal fauna and regular wildlife. Except, of course, for that big old Lovecraftian volcano, of course. Uh, She describes the presence as being human-ish. Now, the summer zizzes make their way through the foliage, looking kind of like a scene out of Lost or something. Rachel mentions how beautiful the scenery is, which causes Scott to suggest, hey, let's all go to Hawaii to see some real nice scenery. Rachel says she's been there, but only in the far-flung future where everything was, you know, a burning mess. Scott says they gotta go, but then remembers a place in Shi'ar space that she might like better. As luck would have it, it's an island in Chandelar, which is uh, where Cannonball lives, right? Now, did... I gotta ask, did Hickman, like, create Chandelar? I mean, you can't imagine why we'd be getting so many, well, well, two mentions of it in these books. Just seems a weird place to keep citing. Anyway, after the vacation chat wraps up, they happen across a rhinoceros with a third eye marking. Cable takes aim, but remarks that whatever it is, doesn't look like a meat-eater. Then, 
Some of those tentacles and a big old gaping mouth emerge from off-panel to eat the poor vegetarian rhinoceros. The summer zizzes take aim and start blasting at the horror. We shift scenes to a place called the Iraq Maw, which I'm going to assume is like deep in the bowels of that volcano, since uh, we're seeing some lava. It stands to reason that it's in the volcano. There's also a weird-looking fella here. He's completely white, besides a marking on his chest, and he's got uh, some big old black bleeding eyes, looking like he's wanna, he's hanging out with a poth over in Fallen Angels. This is a summoner, or a high summoner, and so we follow this scene into a, an info page telling us all about him. Oh, the summoners, not this one in particular. It's not one of the interesting ones, uh, though it does mention Araco, or Araco, which was that other island from Krakoa's origin story from Hoxpox. Um, last we heard, however, was uh, Araco was sealed away somewhere else by Apocalypse and the Horsemen, right? Um, we rejoin our X-Men, riding some rhino mounts across the island, and we learn that uh, they were able to best that tentacled beast. And uh, Cable even regard- remarks that he took a bite out of it. As they continue their ride, they are greeted by... That weirdo summoner who pops right up through the ground. He greets them, however, there's a language problem. The summoner speaks in an almost song-like language while, while only hearing the mutant's words as harsh grunts. Cable offers the summoner a gift in the form of a grenade. Uh, the summoner is pleased but curious, and so he starts pressing all the buttons on the boom ball until, well, the ball goes boom. Cable didn't know what he expected to happen, but... Pretty sure that wasn't going to be it. Uh, this is pretty dumb. <laughs> I'm guessing this is supposed to be funny, and I suppose it kind of is, but it just seems... I don't know, it just doesn't seem tonally right. Uh, now, the summoner is naturally quite displeased with being blown up, and so calls forth all sorts of horror, along with some shadowy warriors with similar markings on their chest as the summoner himself, which, I mean, duh, the X-Men have to fight. Rachel has the idea to try to download their Krakoan language into the Summoner in hopes that they'll be able to communicate and get him to call off the attack. Which is exactly what she does, and wouldn't you know it, it works. The Summoner and Cable then clear up the, you know, grenade confusion. Then Cyclops explains the situation regarding a Krakoa's approach. Remember, they don't know why Krakoa would be drawing near and are expecting the worst. The Summoner is none too bothered, and he asks Cyclops if he loves anybody. Scott gets all coy here and says, sure, you know, for argument's sake, yes, I do love, quote, a single someone. The summoner asks if Cyclops wants to be with that single someone, and Cyclops confirms, duh, yeah, of course he does. The summoner gives the thumbs up and suggests that Scott will understand what Krakoa is up to. And so, not soon after, Krakoa arrives. And, uh, well, maybe bangs the other island, or maybe they're just merging, whatever the case. When all said and done, it's just like my favorite Spice Girl song, Two Become One. The summoner goes to walk away, and Cyclops asks, what's next? The summoner reveals that he's going to be living here because, well, he lives here. Who's he? Well, it won't take us long to find out. Uh, We'll actually find out right after the next info page here. And this info page is an updated map of Krakoa with the addition of the new bits from the Iraq Coral. Now, with that out of the way, we rejoin our weirdo summoner friend who walks his way into the foliage before meeting Apocalypse. Or, I mean, hey. Uh, the big blue guy recognizes the summoner's seed. The summoner warns that an enemy has come and Araco will soon fall. Hey, asks who the summoner's mother is, to which we find out he's the son of the horseman, War. We wrap up with an embrace and a promising to save all of his children. 
that being those on Krakoa and those of Arako. And that's where we leave it. The next book we discuss is Excalibur number two. Well, that was a quickie, huh? <laughs> let's let's talk about it. Um, this was not what I was expecting. I really wanted there to be a little more focus on the X-Men. I mean, I know it's still early, but we don't even have a team yet, right? Uh, is this X-Men book, like this core X-Men book, is it going to be like an X-Men spotlight on? Or like solo X-Men, like they had solo Avengers back in the day? Like... Is this going to be just like a rotating... Ca- I mean, I can get behind that, I guess, but it just feels... Uh, I don't know. Those kind of issues always felt a little throwaway to me. And and again, I know we're very early into this era, but this... I, we get some stuff here, but it kind of felt like a throwaway. Um, that could just be me, and maybe what I was expecting to get out of these issues, especially you know the flagship, you know, straw that stirs the drink book here in X-Men. Uh, let's... Let's put a pin on that, and we'll uh, let's talk about Cyclops. Uh, I can't really say I dug his depiction here. Uh, he came across to me as like an uncanny version of a sitcom dad. He's making like weird jokes and references. It just didn't feel Cyclopsy to me. Has he? I mean, has he been like this since returning from the dead? Whenever, whenever was that that happened? Because uh, I I don't know. This is uh, these past couple of issues have been my reintroduction to Cyclops, and I don't mean coming back from the dead during. You know, House of X, Powers of X, I mean, that last time. <laughs> because last I was following X-Men was right before Scott's death. Or, Well, I mean, he was already... He was dead, but it was before we found out how he died. Because, like, they stretched that reveal out to a point where, like, even I, as, like, a huge Cyclops fan, just didn't give a rat's ass anymore. Then again, it involved the humans, which is, like, to me, basically the Webster's Dictionary definition of things I don't give a rat's ass about. Uh, no matter how hard Marvel tries. Um, now, a few listeners have expressed a bit of trepidation about whether or not Xavier might have tinkered with some of the resurrectees, and, uh, I mean, reading this here and seeing how weird Cyclops is acting, I can't help but feel the same way. Uh, you know, something definitely stinks here. I'm just not sure exactly what it is. Like, I feel we're, like we're not getting a whole, all the story here, you know? Um, which is fine, of course, uh, uh, something else uh, that uh, I was a bit, maybe not worried about, but just, you know, caused me to raise an eyebrow. Uh, the uh, This pertains to Cyclops, you know, saying all coy that, you know, for argument's sake, I do love a single person. And um, I don't know where they're headed with this, though. As we've discussed before, there have been rumors. Uh, for all I know, by now, those rumors have already been paid off or dispelled or debunked. But, uh, you know, we'll get there. I don't know. I have not read ahead. I have not looked ahead, and I've avoided... Pretty much everything I can online that has anything to do with the X-Men. And, I mean, also, I got those weird vibes from the Scott and Lorna scene last issue, so maybe it's that. Who knows? Um, Rachel and Cable really fell into that sort of kind of playful adversarial brother and sister mold pretty quickly. Um, struck me a little bit weird, though. I do suppose with them all living together at Summer House, it stands to reason that they'd uh, get to know each other and get to be on each other's nerves <laughs> a bit. Um... Still, though, I can't help shaking the feeling that they're playing a role rather than acting, like, intrinsically. Though, for all I know, that might just be the point of it, right? Um, the Summoner. Let's talk about this Summoner. 
When I first saw the summoner, it reeked of being just another boring Hickman character. Um, I know I've made mention of those really, really dull antler-headed aliens from his Avengers run. And I'd be lying if I said this didn't strike me as similar. Just like, I don't know, like a blank canvas boilerplate character with some identifiable bits and bobs attached with the markings and whatnot and eyes. Hopefully it's headed somewhere, though uh, part of me thinks that the summoner might have just be like a seminal seed for the X of Swords event. Now, on on the topic there, are we saying X of Swords or Ten of Swords? Well, I mean, are people saying X or Ten? Because I will always be saying X. <laughs> you know, it's just, I never, I don't think I ever said Powers of Ten <laughs> without, you know, kind of rolling my eyes at it. I, it was always Powers of X and X of Swords, regardless of what it's actually called. I'm going to be calling it X of Swords, unless they actually put the word Ten on there. That's just me. Uh, now, the merging of Krakoa and the Coral was something. Uh, at least it gave us something new. It felt like things were progressing a little bit. I mean, when we were halfway through the issue, when we got to, like, the staples, I was ready to write it off as, ha- like, having no stakes. Though being very well written, uh, just a chapter from an issue of X-Men Unlimited or something. Uh, just no consequence and until, you know, we hit the staples, of course. Apocalypse, uh, or uh, is really growing into his role as a good guy here. Um, at least that was my take on the scene. He's a he's protector. He's a protector, and he will care for his children, who I'm assuming includes all mutants. You know, uh, I did like the mentions of some of the things going on in the other X books. You know, the opening roll call page does make mention to uh, Xavier's death in X Force number one, and of course Scott makes a reference to the New Mutants hopping aboard the Starjammer in New Mutants. That said, however, why aren't we seeing anybody react to Xavier's assassination? Like, shouldn't that be, like, the big thing in all these books? You know, outside Magneto just saying, I'm in mourning, I, I, I don't know... I don't know why nobody is really reacting. Unless, of course, it's going to be hand-waved away with the quickness, which I really don't know how I feel about that. Um, Xavier seemed to be, like, the only one whose death carried any actual weight, Right. That and, of course, the the destruction of the Cerebro helmet. Um, It makes me wonder, like, was the ending bit to X-Force number one supposed to be like a commentary on cliffhangers in contemporary comics? Because that's not what I signed on for. (laughs) I hope not. I mean, how about we leave the commentary for for jackasses like me and and you guys just tell good stories in the books, right? Let's let's make that deal. Uh, (laughs) Overall, though, X-Men number two, kind of underwhelming. Uh, for the most part, I enjoyed it uh, as just a odd little vignette that does inch the story a little bit forward. But I, I can't, I can't say I wasn't expecting more. Uh, I definitely was. Uh, now, before we leave you today, let's hit up some feedback here. We're going to start with a message from Damien regarding episode fourteen, in which we discussed Marauders number one. He says it's interesting to see you grapple with whether or not Kitty's in character. The real issue with Kitty is that she has been everything, from suburban teenage girl to ninja, from headmistress to sexy bar girl, to from agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. to space explorer. The problem that Jerry Duggan has is to reconcile these disparate character beats and move her into a new place. The decision to have her claim the name Kate is a clever way to signify that this is a new beginning, but comprising the team of people who share history with her shows that nothing's ignored. I'm pleased to see the characterization stem from how Kitty would react to being locked out of the X-Men. 
For far too long, she's been driven by writers who are trying to recreate their imaginary girlfriends from adolescence. Whedon, Guggenheim, and particularly Bendis seemed unable to write her without their personal connections getting in the way. That's an excellent point. That's a great point. Kitty has been a lot of things in the comics, and for better or for worse, she's been a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, the first time I encountered this was during the uh, Warren Ellis run on Excalibur. Uh, I hung out on Usenet all the time. And uh, a lot of the Usenetters I'd follow, they took it as like almost a personal affront that she and Pete Wisdom were, you know, banging. <laughs> they, uh, they did not like that. Pete Wisdom was like public enemy number one on, you know, Rack's, Rack Comics Arts X-Men, <laughs> whatever the hell that Usenet board was called. Uh, I also remember, you know, conversely, a lot of people being annoyed when Claremont came back, and, like, one of the first things he did was establish that Kitty was still only 16 years old, which would uh, make Pete Wisdom look a little, you know, eh, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, or just make it so those stories, you know, that those events, those bangings, <laughs> never actually happened. Um, you're definitely spot on there. I think, I think, I definitely think Kitty falls into that... You know, if you're on the DC side of things, uh, and the Teen Titans, that, that Donna Troy mold, where readers kind of identify her as, like, their character in, in like, a maybe a romantic sort of way. Uh, <laughs> uh, back to Damien's email. He says, I've already established that I attended Catholic school, and therefore my knowledge of Jewish customs is low. I've seen commentary that Kitty is a very Jewish name, and Kate is a much more genteel, and this could be read as a rejection of all parts of her identity. Apparently, it's not uncommon for people to change their name as part of a rebellion against their parents. It's an interesting idea that's backed up by the absence of her star of David Necklace. I think it's unintentional as there are a couple of things that happen later that, imp- that imply a lack of knowledge of du- Judaism rather than a de- deliberate rejection. And uh, personally, I grew up in mostly Jewish neighborhoods. I've told the story on the air before that on Jewish holidays, you know, before they decided to just shut school down for them, my classroom would be comprised of me and a substitute teacher. <laughs> but that said, I, I still don't know a heck of a lot about Jewish customs, uh, despite having basically only Jewish friends growing up. I don't know a whole lot of their customs. Um, and, you know, they didn't really know a whole lot about mine either, besides the fact that, you know, we had a tree in our house for, uh, for a month out of the year. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I've also seen people critical of Storm's presentation. One of the writers at Women Write About Comics did an article drawing attention to how pale Storm is colored. Back in the cockroom days, she was established as a dark-skinned black woman, and in Marauders, she's being colored as exceptionally light-skinned. This seems particularly sad when, as you said, her characterization is so much better than in recent runs. Yeah, um... I can't say that Storm's skin tone was something I noticed. Uh, Then again, it's not something I would focus on. Uh, I did definitely enjoy her characterization here because characterization is something I'd focus on. I'm, you know, there's a, there's a currency to being outraged and to foment outrage. And, uh, to me, life's a little too short for that. Uh, I like the way she was characterized is all I can say about it. Um, yeah, moving on. <laughs> Back to Damien's email. Uh, one of my favorite things about this issue is the echo of the Professor Xavier's a jerk panel in the splash where she announces the team name. And I didn't even notice that. That's a great callback and, uh, and a great eye. Uh, my favorite thing about Marauders is the setup. 
In many ways, it reminds me of the Australia era when the X-Men would travel around helping different people. The human vs. mutant element makes it feel very X-Men-y. And yeah, totally, this might be like the purest X-Men book of the Dawn of X launch. It's like the only one that actually screamed X-Men to me. Um, you know, Marauders and New Mutants, actually, but of course, in New Mutants' case, it screamed New Mutants at me. <laughs> uh, Damien continues, The covers are pretty amazing as well. Russell Dowderman manages to create covers that are iconic pin-up pieces, as Marvel seems to like, but also which tells part of the story, which is my preference. And yes, this had very strong and striking cover. Um, and in filing subsequent issues into like reading order, I've noticed that, again, it's Marauders and New Mutants that seem to have the most creative covers of this run so far. They definitely stand out as being special. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Altogether, this is by far my favorite DOX book. I can't wait for you to read what's coming up. It gets better and better. Uh, I completely forgot to mention my theory for why Kitty can't go through the gates. Mora is trying to keep herself hidden. Kitty's power could find her hiding place, so Mora has somehow got Krakoa to block her. The only problem with this theory is that Doug would have to be in on it, which seems unlikely considering his friendship with Kitty. Which is a awesome theory that I hadn't thought of. Um, it stands to reason that Kitty can get into places that most others couldn't, so you know, keeping her at uh, arm's reach or even you know past arm's reach is probably a very good play for Mora. That's a an awesome point that. I, you know, I'm. You see, I, like I said, I, I see symbols where they don't exist, and uh, when things are like when things almost make too much sense, I totally miss them. So thank you so much for your message, Damien. Um, I really appreciate you keeping up with the show, uh, especially in this new era where we're post hoxpox. So thank you so much. Um, we got a message from Lamar uh, on Twitter. He is uh, reading along with the collected editions, those anthology books that we talked about, and he says, Dawn of X Volume 1 was okay. The shoe came down in X-Force. New Mutants was pretty good. I think I liked that the most next to X-Men and Marauders. Excalibur and Fallen Angels were passable, which, yeah, <laughs> that... Uh, uh, Excalibur and Fallen Angels, definitely. The two Betsy books, or the two Psylocke books, because you know, one of them isn't Betsy. Uh, the two Psylocke-ish books are the ones that were towards the bottom for me as well. Uh, thank you so much for following along, Lamar. I, I, uh, I hope you're not regretting spending that money on the anthologies. Um, Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade, he says, I just binged X-Lapsed episodes 13 through 17 today while doing work around the house. Really enjoying discovering current X-Men through you. Well, thank you so much, Pat. Uh, it really means a lot. I, you know, the the idea that I'm helping, you know, keep people company while they're doing other things that that just uh, that makes me a lot happier than maybe it should. <laughs> I think it's one of the cooler things about this sort of uh, this sort of uh, media of podcasting here. It's, you know, I I get to go along with people just like people get to go along with me. It's uh, it's really cool, and uh, when you get that reminder every now and again, it. Uh, really does a lot to bolster your your spirits and make you make you see value in what you do so thank you so much for that uh, that message there uh, it came at a time i really needed it so thank you and uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from my good friend walt walt neeland comic reviews by walt and he says i just dropped about 70 dollars in online orders for dawn of x thanks to you like 10 minutes ago and that always makes me nervous 
Uh, he says, uh, the H-O-X-P-O-X-T-P-B, because I'm OCD, I'm gonna have, if I'm gonna have the anthology Dawn of X collections, I need the anthology Hoxpox volume as well, and volume 7, plus I can't find, so maybe I'll have to actually get volumes 2 and 6. Uh, I've been digging X-Lapsed, albeit I'm only up to episode 10, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm putting these out so quick. Uh, I appreciate your behind-the-scenes insight on setting the issues aside, and the growing stack of them, and taking the plunge, and... That's something I wanted to make sure I mentioned because I think discussing the stacks is something a lot of us can relate to. And it's so weird when I think about it because I'm, I'm sitting right next to the stack right now. Uh, I actually have all the uh, all of the Dawn of X stuff I haven't gotten to in a short box and it's almost full. It's almost a complete short box with maybe about four inches of empty space in it. And I, I keep thinking about like... As like a you know late teen early twenties, I just couldn't wait for Wednesday. You know I couldn't wait to read everything. I'd get home from the shop, I'd read everything that day, and by the time that night was there, I'd be like just chomping for the next Wednesday. I was literally like living between Wednesdays, living for Wednesday, to the point where I mean I'd get annoyed if Christmas caused comic shipments to be pushed back a day late till Thursday. Which is insane to me now, because, I mean, right now, Wednesdays come and go. I get my one monthly package from DCBS that, more often than not, just sits by the door unopened for a couple of weeks. You know, the stacks just add up, and it's, it's weird to think about how different things are, and it makes you question things, you know? Like, are, like how much of this is out of habit? How much of this is out of just wanting to still be a part of something that maybe you're not anymore. I, I don't know. Uh, one of the things that Reggie and I talked about a lot was uh, the, the addictiveness uh, and the compulsion of collecting. And, you know, they say there's no better research than me-search, and I think I'd be a, uh, a heck of a case to, uh, to look into because, yeah, the stacks pile up. Uh, back to Walt. He says, I've also been approaching your, uh, appreciating your thoughts as well as feedback you've shared on info pages. I have to say my biggest turnoffs to Hickman stuff was the info pages, combined with the Krakoan language and not having a key until halfway into Hoxbox. And I quit at X-Men number one for cover prices, plus info page fatigue, plus solicitations of so many titles bi-weekly. And yeah, the info pages, they're pretty dis- divisive here on the show. Uh, I'm happy... To see that I wasn't completely alone and not digging them 100%. I was afraid that I'd get a bit of clapback for expressing my frustration with them. Um, I think since they are so different, I think the novelty of them gives uh, it gives people a pa- People give it a pass because it's so novel. Where I just saw it as, you know, I was counting how many pennies each page cost, you know. So that, that kind of... It's one of those things I just couldn't let go of, um, much to, uh, you know, much of the obvious, you know, complaints that I made. Uh, cover prices and the twice-monthly shipping of the early books, I totally get it. Um, you're a lot like me where it's all or nothing, so I can definitely see quitting with, uh, with you know, the dawning of the Dawn of X. I could totally get that, and, I mean, just look at the first month. Uh, that's like 60 bucks on just X-Books in a month that... I think, what, only two of them were by Hickman's? Or, or if uh, two of each one, so about four of them were, were by Hickman. So it was a lot of different voices with this new Dawn of X era, and, I mean, 
two issues of Fallen Angels, which is weird. <laughs> but, yeah, I could totally see that. Uh, back to Walt. He says, of course, as said, and I appreciate the shout-out, the DOX Anthology volumes caught me, and I really want to support the format, even though I've not actually been reading them yet. And I tell you, it's not often I give current-year Marvel any sort of credit or props, I guess, but these anthology volumes, brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. It's a great and easy way to follow along. You can get them real cheap at in-stock trades, like 40% off, and it gives... It kind of gives the entire Dawn of X run, like, a kind of evergreen feel, you know? Because you're not just collecting the first six issues of X-Men. You're, you're actually collecting the first six issues, or I don't know how many issues are in each anthology. I'm assuming it's six, maybe 12 for the first one, or maybe it's maybe the first one's broken up. But, I mean, it just makes it feel like you're experiencing this the way it was intended to. You're not just picking little bits out. It's uh, pretty cool. And, uh, you know, as for... Buying them all individually I can't tell you how Even just ordering the books on DCBS It's a real pain in the ass (laughs) Not only do I have to dodge variant covers Which there are many, many, many And reprints Because DCBS will offer reprints And also resolicits Um, I also gotta make sure I know which books are double shipping For the month Which means I have to look at solicitations Which I don't like to do Uh, So far in this journey, I think... I want to say I messed up like two or three times ordering on DCBS and actually had to go to the shop to pick up something that I missed or I might have accidentally ordered two copies of the same book because I mistook a variant for the next issue. And uh, it's a real pain. And uh, I mean, this is a total first world problem, you know, but I dread doing the order every month because it's it's really a pain. And I'm always worried that I'm going to miss something. I'm always worried that I'm going to order two of something. It's... It's not the uh, it's it's not the friendliest, uh, and it's not DCBS's fault. It's just what Marvel's putting out on the table. It's it's really hard to follow. Uh, back to Walt, he says, "Pretty sure X Lapse is going to get me to take the plunge soon, especially being able to binge read a bit, whether I go in order through each TPB or cycle through each title within." I'm worried about Marvel not keeping up on the Dawn of X volumes, but in looking at Amazon, it looks like there are placeholders to at least volume 16 or so, and that seemed to include the giant-sized Storm issue and some Empire thing. And yeah, that's... Current year, that's a risk with Marvel and DC, because not only do they relaunch comics willy-nilly, they also relaunch collected editions by numbers and, and trade dresses and spines... And then they just stop them on occasion. You know, they'll just cancel it. I, I hope that for the foreseeable future, they'll be able to keep, you know, Dawn of X anthologies going. Hopefully, you know, best case scenario for the whole run. Um, I think right now it's kind of hard to say which, one way or another because, you know, we are, we are still in the pandemic and put such a crimp on publication. So maybe we'll start seeing the lasting effects pretty soon of whether or not they're going to keep coming out. Hopefully they do. I, I don't see any reason to say they wouldn't. Um, Then again, I also haven't been looking at sales figures. Um, Back to Walt, he says, While that makes me think they'll fall behind, I'll suck it up and accept it for the format. Though it occurs to me, as well as jogs my memory that you mentioned it in one of the X-Lapsed episodes, some of these should be on Marvel Unlimited by now, so I can have the anthologies for print edition series, and uh, at least for the first few issues of the new books, I should be able to read via Marvel Unlimited. And yes, definitely, I'll remind everyone that, I mean, I think it's, what, six months until it pops up on Marvel Unlimited? So, 
I mean, you could read everything on there and be way further ahead than I am right now. So it's a definitely a viable and cost-efficient option if if you can do digital. I can't do digital, but uh, if you can, hey, it's there. And uh, if you're already paying for it, you already you know you already own the license to it. You don't own it, but I mean, you, you can you can check it out and follow along and all that good stuff. So thank you so much, Walt. I really it really means a lot that you're following along. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on on the stories. I want to hear some of your thoughts on, on House of X, Powers of X, and these early Dawn of Xs. So. And, of course, that goes for everybody. I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts. Uh, even time travelers, if you didn't discover this show for several months, still want to know what you thought about it, because uh, it's still something worth talking about. <laughs> now, if you do want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you find show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, the audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find all the programs. Uh, we just broke 350 episodes of uh, the combined, you know, programs there. So, a lot to listen to if you uh, if you like the uh, cut of my jib. And, uh, hey, why wouldn't you, right? Uh, now, I think that's where I'll leave it today. I want to thank everybody so, so much for hanging out, even as we get into these uh, difficult second issues uh, of Dawn of X. It really means a lot that there are listeners and uh, folks willing to reach out to chat me up. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, I think I said this last episode, but uh, welcome to what might be the shortest episode of x Lapsed. I, I really mean it this time. <laughs> this is our uh, our landmark 25th episode, where we're going to be talking about X-Men Volume 5, Number 3. Now, this is the only issue of X-Men that shipped in December 2019. Um, X-Men, for what I'm sure is an actual reason, was the only Dawn of X book not to double ship this month. So, in total, we've got 11 books to discuss for this go-around. Um, for, you know, cover date February 2020, ship date December 9- 2019. 
And that's uh, that's still about 44 bucks American on uh, just Xbooks for a single month. Which is something I'll, for better or for worse, uh, probably be uh, keeping in the back of my mind as we work our way through them. Uh, that is notable for being $10 cheaper. We're down 10 bucks from month one. Ten, uh, ten, month one, we spent $54 USD because we had those $5 books as well. Anyway, let's get right into X-Men, Volume 5, Number 3. Of course, it had a February 2020 cover date like, well, the next 10 books will. The story's called Horticulture, written by Jonathan Hickman with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen and Lionel Yu. Colors by Sonny Goh and Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller. Edits, Beast, so White Sobolski. $3.99 went on sale December 4th, 2019. Now we open in the Savage Land. And it's almost as though Hickman has made it like his personal challenge to make most of his stories take place in locations that I just can't stand (laughs) in in hopes that maybe he'll be able to get me to come around. Um, Now, the Savage Land isn't far removed from places like, you know, Deep Space and the far-flung future on my list of places in the Marvel Universe I couldn't give a rat's ass about. It makes me wonder what might be next. Maybe it'll be the Morlock Tunnels because I love that place. Anywho, we're here. And we see some young mutants rounding up some Krakoan fruit and flora. We see Pixie and Anol. Suddenly, a portal cracks open and a quartet of Stormtrooper-looking characters stomp on out. They approach the young mutants before blasting them with, well, some sort of, like, crystalline goop. Uh, They're here because they love the S-word out of flowers. And uh, the S-word gimmick is going to get pretty old pretty fast. Unless, of course, maybe we remove the hyphen, which changes S-word to just the word sword. Uh-oh. Nah, I'm just kidding. It probably doesn't mean anything. Let's meet our cast. We've got the White Queen, we've got Cyclops, Magneto, Marvel Girl, and the Black King, Sebastian Shaw. Who wants pay- Who wants credits? Because we got pages of them, man. Uh, I think we're at a point now where we could probably fill two complete issues with nothing but these credit pages. And I probably shouldn't put that thought out in the universe because Marvel would probably release it as like a convention special, even though we ain't doing conventions right now. Anyway, we resume comics in Krakoa, and we're in an emergency meeting of the Quiet Council. Now, you might be wondering, are they here to talk about the attack on Krakoa? Are they here to talk, you know, to deal with the fallout of the assassination of Charles Xavier? Well, we'll find out soon enough. But first, Jean and Emma need a page and a half to be catty toward one another. Uh, it's worth noting, when Cyclops enters the scene, he comes up behind Jean and, like, places his hands on her arms in a very, like, concerned boyfriend sort of way. And it makes me want to wanna ask you, you know, since I am X-lapsed, were there bits in the pre-Hoxpox Uncanny run that had Scott and Jean, like, reconciling or officially together? Or, or am I just learning all of this along with everyone else at this point? I, I really don't know. Anyway, the Quiet Council takes their seats... Empty chairs include Xavier's and the Red Throne of the Hellfire Club, so perhaps Kitty's just away, or this takes place before the prior, the, the coronation. Uh, Emma complains here that she has a splitting headache. And this takes us to an info page which discusses the fact that Krakoa is screaming. We learn that a Krakoan gate has been forcibly closed, and that's the one in the Savage Land. And this has thrown the island itself into a bit of disarray. 
Wildlife on the island is becoming aggressive. The island's overall mass is getting smaller incrementally. And all telepathic island dwellers are reporting increased levels of psychic assault and consumption. Because if we remember, Krakoa feeds off psychic energy, so it looks like it's pulling off quite the binge. And that's likely the cause of Ms. Frost's headache. Now back in the Savage Land, our stormtroopers unmask, revealing themselves to be... Well, four old biddies. Uh, and one of them is clearly modeled on Estelle Getty. I mean, it's, it's Sophia Petrillo, 100%. Uh, we get some jokes, I think they're jokes, about how one of them is hard of hearing and then mishears a lot of what everyone else is saying. So, oh, the hilarity. Um, and Estelle is the one who, uh, rather than cursing, says things like S-word, B-word, and D-word. Uh, this joke, if it is a joke, uh, plays itself out inside of one speech balloon. But it'll stick with us for the rest of the issue, whether we like it or not. Worse yet, it seems this manner of speaking is contagious to all of her teammates. Now, with the young mutants on ice, our group of grandmas decide it's time to start picking flowers. We rejoin Cyclops, who's being accompanied by the white and black royalty from the Hellfire Club, and uh, we see them arriving in the Australian Outback via a Krakoan gateway. You see, since the Savage Land Gate is jammed, they're going to need another way. Emma and Shaw are a bit incredulous, and they don't get why Cyclops has brought them here. Uh, as luck would have it, our old friend Gateway just happens to be hanging out right outside the Outback Krakoan Gate, swinging his little sling over his head. Which, uh, kind of begs the question, didn't we just see Gateway? It was just a couple episodes ago, Marauders number two. Uh, I mean, Gateway, I'm gonna assume, was summoned by Emma Frost to zap her team from Taiwan to London. Did Hickman not read that? Did, did I imagine it? Or does this story maybe come before that? I guess it really doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> we're, we're just eating up time here. Um, in moments, our trio arrives in the Savage Land, where they see the Golden Girls picking flowers. They introduce themselves as Horticulture, which it's Horde, like the Horde that's invading Earth in Strike Force Moratory, and Culture. I admit that's a pretty clever name. Yeah, clearly, it's a play off of Horticulture. Um, Shaw mishears it as whore culture, which is uh, probably something in a whole nother magazine. Now, one of the old ladies takes one look at Emma Frost and uh, decides to assert that she probably has some sort of vaginal issue. She is uh, mouth-gaped, and uh, Cyclops looks away, Shaw stifles a laugh, and I'm guessing they probably both know the sting of that special shampoo. After closing her gaped maw, Emma tries a psychic scan, but is unable to get a read on any of the old broads. Sebastian Shaw decides he'll take the lead here and attempts to sweet-talk the octogenarians. And so he talks a lot. Uh, I think he mentions here that he's been with many women and men. Uh, I don't know if that's new information or not. Not that it really matters. Um, all this sweet talk gets him is zapped in the face with that crystalline goop, uh, and the uh, old lady stomp him into the ground a little bit. After watching for perhaps a few seconds too long, Cyclops lets loose an optic blast to knock the Horticulturans off of Shaw. One of them claims that the blast caused her to... break a hip. And so, Boy Scout Cyclops runs over to attend to her. Any, anybody want to guess what happens next? Anybody? Oh, boy. Oh, she's playing possum, and Cyclops gets a face full of the goop. Frost has finally had enough and demands that the old ladies share their secret origin story with them. For whatever reason, this works, and one of the old broads starts spilling it. Now, it turns out that the mutants and Krakoa are spoiling Horticulture's plans. They are, get this, 
radical botanists. Okay, this this sort of falls under one of my main complaints about comedy in comic books. I, it was just last episode we talked a little bit about the Hox Pox Docs moments that made us laugh, right? I get the feeling we're supposed to be like busting a gut here, hearing a radical botanist, and like rushing off to our social media pages to edit our bios and profiles to include this wacky descriptor into our uh, into our profiles. I feel like this is a complaint I've made about several comics in the past. Um, anytime you start a thought with, "Wouldn't it be funny if dot dot dot," more often than not, that answer is going to be no. Funny is funny. This is not, but it really wants to be. Anyway, let's go back to their origin story. Now, they've worked for agrochemical and biotech companies for a combined two centuries. Uh, these are companies whose primary goal was creating seedless slave plants. Now, I'm no scientist, but I think this is probably an allusion to the GMO debates, of which I really don't have a firm position. Um, I think I can see the good and the not-so-good, but engaging in actual debate over it falls way, way above my pay grade. So, uh, in the flashback, these not-yet-old ladies decided to kill their bosses and try to create their own horticulture seed. With it, they'll eventually be able to dictate and control the entire planet's food supply. And they'll be like the gatekeepers of it as well, deciding who eats and, conversely, who starves. They hope to return the world to its, quote, natural state. Naturally, the, co- the coming of Krakoa threw a bit of a wrench into their plans... And so they dedicated themselves to hacking into what makes Krakoa tick. So they're here to collect samples with which they might make Krakoa work with them, or if not, they'll just pluck Krakoa out like a weed. The trio, you know, Shaw, Frost, and Cyclops, they, uh, look at this, they leave the old ladies behind and return to Krakoa for another emergency meeting of the Quiet Council. Frost reveals that they have a problem, and that's where we end it. But first, we get one final info page, and here we get the quick and dirty on horticulture. They are Augusta Bromes, an agrochemist at 64 years old, Opal Vetiver, a bioengineer 68 years old, Lily Lamus, or Limus, a geneticist at 71 years old, and Edith Scutch, a botanical engineer 81 years old. So they they really found some good old old lady names, right? Uh, I think that's a... I don't know. This is... Now, this group of horticulture here, they're based out of a mobile lab called the Green Thumb, which is currently situated in Sedona, Arizona. And that's a place I've actually been to a number of times. And uh, the only notable thing to me is that it has a... uh, The McDonald's in Sedona has teal arches instead of yellow, or golden arches, I guess. It has teal arches to to mix in with the the decor up there. So, uh, yeah, that's that's it. (laughs) That's the end of the issue. Uh, the next issue we'll be discussing is Marauders number three, but uh, let's talk about this. I don't have a whole lot to say because there really isn't much to say, other than I was not a fan of this. I feel like you know this horticulture thing. I think that's a solid premise for a story. However, you know, playing our bad guys as comic relief doesn't do it any favors. It really pulls the oomph. It pulls me out of the story. It removes the oomph. Uh, any urgency I might have felt was gone, um, and I'm okay with goofy villains, but, you know, they have to have some substance, not when they're only a joke, you know, um, think about the, you know, the Batroc complaints I made during Marauders, you know, I'm sure when Batroc was, uh, you know, first, making his first appearances, he was a villain first, and then a goof, 
now it's like you lead with the goofiness and uh i just i just don't know um these golden girls knockoffs they just felt like a four color meme and maybe i'm just projecting i do that a lot um because i do take issue with low effort content but this feels like something that was meant to kick off a bunch of memes and not a whole lot more and again I, I am totally open to the possibility that I'm projecting. I just, when I see things that look extremely low effort and low hanging, <laughs> that's how I feel. Really not a whole lot to talk about here. My least favorite issue of X-Men so far. Um, the art was nice, but uh, yeah, not much to this. And it's, we're not going to get another issue of this for, I think, at least 12 episodes. So, I mean... <laughs> I guess it's not that urgent, right? I don't know that we'll be getting references to uh, Horticulture and the other Dawn of X books here, but we'll see. But, yeah, this was, uh... Yeah, this wasn't great. <laughs> I agree, disagree, definitely let me know. I, I would love to hear. But, uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. Uh, we got a few letters to, to uh, get through here. We got uh, two from Damien, then we got a couple more as well. First one from Damien is discussing Excalibur number two. He says, This episode I mainly found myself laughing along at your reactions to my comments. My reactions sound much funnier in your hands. It's interesting to hear that you see Americans stereotyped as cowboys. I don't know if that's better than deciding an entire country is full of magic. I think that might be a wash, right? <laughs> that's definitely something funny to think about. And it reminds me of uh, you know, being in high school. And I had a few friends who were like very, very much into anime. And I mean, uh, there's anime that I dig, I re- there's anime that I love, and I'm also a huge fan of manga, so I'm not making fun of them for that. But they would talk about like making these pilgrimages to Japan, because in their mind, they assumed the entire country revolved around anime. Like, everything was anime. And uh, so it's, just, it's a reminder that it's so easy to like distill cultures and countries down to some pretty specific bits and pieces if you really want to. It's a... Uh, Definitely uh, definitely something to, uh, to to bat around the old brain. Uh, back to Damien. He says, Apocalypse remains interesting. He's a really great character to bring into an X-Team. And as he always thinks, he's the good guy. So from his point of view, he's not changed. And I agree. Apocalypse is definitely the strongest piece of the Excalibur puzzle. It's uh, really, out of that second issue, I don't know that I enjoyed anything but the Apocalypse scene. You know, I, I was... He, he is a very, very well-written character at this point. Uh, Damien continues, At some point, I will take your advice and work my way through your backlog. There's something great about how particular comics remind you of your own history. It's probably no surprise that different fans have different ideas of the characters based on when they discovered them. As they say, the golden age of comics is 12. And that was 1986 for him. Now, speaking of backlog and... That golden age sweet spot of comics and pop culture hitting when you're around 12, uh, that's actually something we had a show about. Now, uh, the first episode of that was covering the year I turned 12. Uh, it's a show on the uh, in the archives called Real Comics History. And uh, the one that we... Our first episode is actually episode 2 because it was released out of order. But uh, uh, Real Comics History, episode 2 was a show that was predicated on examining what was in comics when somebody was 12. In this case, me. I was 12 in 1992. 
So that's that's where we started. And uh, the first episode talks about things like it was 1992. So we talked about the Executioner song in X Men. We talked about the death of Superman. We talked about the launch of Image Comics. We talked about comic book trading cards. We talked about a whole bunch of fun stuff. Wizard Magazine. I that's a project that I really wanted to continue because I feel very very strongly that our perceptions and uh, just our view of comics is informed so much by by when we were that age or there or thereabouts. Um, I keep thinking about every character that I see now. It's it's hard to shake that first impression, you know, of when I was twelve and when I saw these characters and. Uh, yeah, maybe one day down the line I'll get back to that sort of a show But uh, I, I really enjoyed those episodes that we did And we lost the premise of when I was 12 Because, I mean, we could only do that once with me um, But we did talk about more years And we tried to evoke similar sort of feelings towards those years But, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's a lot of fun to talk to people And get, like, talking talking to Damien about when he was 12 in 1986 What was What was going on then, right? What was uh, we had? You know, the crisis just ended, so we we were in the post crisis. Um, I, I think uh, Daredevil: Born Again was around then. We had Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen. You know, I mean, nineteen eighty six. I, I thought nineteen ninety two was a great year to be twelve. Nineteen eighty six might have been better. Ninja Turtles was hitting. I mean, that's yeah, that's that's a good year to be twelve. I tell you what. Um, but thank you for that, and we'll get to uh, Damien's next message right here. This is regarding Marauders number two. He says, You really don't like Batrock the Leaper, do you? I'm in that group that unironically loves lame villains. I'm not surprised Shaw employed, employed Batrock, as Shaw is also a lame villain. Hey, come on, come on, Shaw. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Now, the, the coolest thing about Shaw growing up is that he had a son named Shinobi. That was... <laughs> That was the coolest thing about Sebastian Shaw when I was uh, getting into comics. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Rereading along with you, I can see how Emma's behavior could come across as cruel. This is clearly a continuation of the storyline from the X-Men Black one-off, where they presented Emma and Shaw's past relationship as abusive, and Emma's reclaiming of the Hellfire Club as a victory. You should look it up as it's drawn by Chris Pachalo, who you clearly love. And, uh, that is the one X-Men Black issue I wasn't able to find when I was when I was just scooping these things up in a Black Friday sale last year, I found all the other ones, but I did not find the uh, the Emma Frost one. So I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, and yes, I love Chris Bocciolo. Uh I can't pronounce his name, but I love his work. And, uh, and maybe I am pronouncing his name right. I've never met the gentleman. Uh, one of my most treasured pieces of comics ephemera is something I found in a. Uh, uh, one of my comic shops nearby has a back room where it's he he describes everything back there as just you know trash you know stuff and uh, he'll uh, you know he'll sometimes let me dig around back there because I am a I'm a pack rat for one and I also just have this fascination with ephemera um, and this piece of ephemera was the DC Comics Vertigo announcement brochure. It's just like a folded piece of paper that has Vertigo written on it, <laughs> and it uh, it came out in late 1992 to announce the launch. In uh, I believe Vertigo launched cover dated January 1993, and uh, this brochure was signed by Chris Pachalo. So uh, that's one of my treasured pieces of ephemera that I have framed. It's not hung yet because. Hanging things on my wall is too big a commitment, but it is framed, 
and it's waiting for a time where maybe my wife will come in and hang it up because I I can't commit. But uh, that is one of my most treasured pieces um, of discovered ephemera. I've got a lot of weird stuff. Um, maybe I'll go into deep detail on some of my fun ephemera another time. But uh, uh, back to uh, Damien, he says, you immediately picked up on the first Jewish error I was referencing. There's another one coming, which I think you'll also guess. I suppose it could be argued that Kitty is reacting to the death of her father figure and therefore breaking her faith, but the fact that Bishop on panel references tattooing as a mark he was given in a prison camp would imply that it was due to her Jewish identity being forgotten by the creative team. My understanding is that the Jewish taboo of tattooing is down to the use of tattoos in the Holocaust. So I would expect that Kitty Shone memorializing her relatives who died in the Holocaust back in Uncanny X-Men number 199 to not get a tattoo. It was the first on-panel emotional reaction to Xavier's death, though, which is interesting. And you know what? I'm an idiot, because I didn't even put that reference together. Um, I, 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 probably, I probably came across like a horse's ass. I didn't, I didn't put two and two together there. Um... And I mean, we were, I mean, this is, this is like anvil heavy here. Um, Bishop referencing, you know, that it wasn't his choice to get it. And all the kitties, uh, you know, relatives, uh, that's, that's heavy stuff there. And, uh, that really puts a whole other, um, layer on it. Um, very, you know, very, very heavy, very, very heavy. Um, uh, Damien continues, I work retail and I've had stand-up comics practice on me because I'm a captive audience. So it turns out that despite my Excalibur key feedback, Britain and America are not that different. <laughs> and, oh man, it's almost as bad as getting like Christmas carolers at your door, right? <laughs> it's just, you're stuck standing there waiting for them to uh, finish singing at you. It's just like when you have these, uh, the stand, these wannabe stand-up comics who uh, are, are joking at you. Uh, like when I was repairing the windshield and like when you're, when you're at work as well, uh, I, I mean, you're, <laughs> I've only had carolers come once. Um, and it's like the most awkward thing in the world. It's, it's like almost akin to trespassing because it's that awkward. Uh, and I, and you won't find people who love Christmas more than I do. Maybe, I mean, everybody loves Christmas who, who is, you know, into Christmas, um, I was actually even considering a weekly, because I have Chris's on Infinite Earths, and every year I do blog posts that I call Christmas on Infinite Earths, and I was actually considering doing a weekly Christmas on Infinite Earths podcast uh, all year long. So every week, talking about a Christmas comic book, every week throughout the year, so 115 degrees outside, ah, screw it, we're talking about Christmas again, so eh, maybe I will, you never know. Uh, back to Damien, he says, They're heavily leaning into Pyro acting recklessly with the tattoo. I do like the idea that realizing that he was only resurrected because no one cared if it went wrong would affect him, but he's almost cartoonish. And that was my feeling, too. Um, it was very extreme, um, very unsubtle, very cartoonish. Uh, and Damien uh, continues, As you say, it's no surprise when Kitty becomes the Red Queen. There are surprises to come. I was particularly excited by the choice of the White Knight. And I'm looking forward to that. I, I wonder if it'll be another Frost. I th I might be misremembering, but I thought there was another Frost in, like, like the Jay Farber era Generation X. Um, so after Larry Hammett and the Pookas and crap. Um, probably like around issue 50-something. I think we met another Frost there. I wonder if it'll be, uh, if it'll be them. 
Um, he wraps up with looking forward to your next episode, and uh, I'm looking forward to your next email, your next message. Thank you so much uh, for, uh, as always, for reaching out. Uh, I always enjoy uh, getting your messages and uh, and uh, responding to them. Uh, next, we got Dallas Gibson. He says. After Hoxpox, when I saw the characters in Fallen Angels, I immediately thought this book would center around resurrection. Psylocke with her identity history, I'm guessing a time-displaced cable, and Laura a clone. Will Professor X be playing Frankenstein? What nefarious and questionable ways will the resurrection process be implemented? Boy, I was way off. (laughs) So I went with what I was given, and at least it was only six issues. (laughs) Great job as always. (laughs) Thank you, Dallas. I didn't know what to think when I saw Fallen Angels, especially with the uh, with the cover showing the cover, of the first issue showing us our our you know cast. I was not sure what to expect. Um, I knew I had a feeling it wasn't going to be like the '80s version. <laughs> Which, while on the topic of the '80s version, I am talking to some people about doing the uh, books club on Fallen Angels. Um, should know more about that in the next few episodes. Uh, probably wouldn't be something that would actually, uh, you know, be, uh, like, uploaded until probably the end of October, beginning November, because I want everybody who wants to be a part of it to be able to be a part of it. But uh, we're ironing out details right now to see if we can get something rolling on that. Uh, we usually work, uh, we usually collaborate in Google Docs, so if anybody's interested in talking about that 80s series, uh of a uh, of fallen angels, uh, reach out. Let me know. We can uh, we can get you access, and we'll uh, we'll have a good time sharing some thoughts. And uh, I will uh, put out an episode where where we discuss it. So you know, keep that in the back of your mind if if that might be something interesting to you. But uh, thank you, Dallas, for uh, for reaching out here. And uh, yes, at least this is only six issues because <laughs> this oof uh, fallen angels number two was. Uh, I don't want to say it wasn't good, but it wasn't good. Uh, finally, we have a message from our friend Al Sedano. He says, Another issue read, an episode listened to, and only a few days after the last one instead of a week. Who knows, maybe I'll catch up with you sometime in the next year or three. Anyway, here are some thoughts on episode four, Powers of X, number two. First of all, I was also a bit confused about the beginning of the issue. I also thought that everything X-related had been published before now had still happened. All the characters act like it, but this makes it look like the entire timeline has changed. I'm not sure which is which now, and I'm not sure how I'll feel about it either. I would have been much happier if the caption for this scene just read, quote, a few months ago. And uh, you hit the nail on the head with what I struggled with getting through Hoxpox. And kind of where I still continue to struggle if I allow myself. Now, I've heard... I've heard from folks who assumed that post-Hoxpox, or I guess at-Hoxpox, we were like at a, t- a tabula rasa sort of reboot. You know, everything is brand new. I've talked to other people where everything is the same as it ever was. I've also talked to some people who uh, stated that everything actually happened, but maybe not in the same moral lifestyle life cycle. Right now... I'm just trying to accept that everything happened in this 10th moral life, just so I can, like, get over it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more secure. You know, my footing is getting more firm, but I, I'd be lying if I, uh, if I said I wasn't looking up to see if shoes were dropping every now and again. So, uh, I'm trying. <laughs> Baby steps. Uh, back to Al. He says, 
Also, while I'm fine with the info pages, as I said before, I have to agree that two pages of credits is too much. Maybe for the first issues, but not issue two onward. And you ain't seen nothing yet, my friend. They're coming. They're going to still be coming. I... I, while I haven't read, you know, the books that just came out this month, I have entered them into my Excel spreadsheet, which, you know, I, I do grab the credits, and I do, you know, I'll put the, the issue title and the writer and the artist, and uh, I'll grab the, you know, the cover date from the Indicia. So, yeah, even the books that I just got in my uh, in my DCBS package a couple weeks ago, yeah, it's two pages, two pages of credits. Uh, back to Al, he says, unlike you, I like the idea of the world mind. It sounds like they're taking the concept from the Nova series. Between that and the comparisons to the Kree Supreme Intelligence, it seems to me like Hickman is trying to tie the X-Men firmly into the Marvel Universe, instead of leaving them in their own little corner like a lot of writers tend to do. The thing about me is that I came in with the X-Men in their own corner, you know? And uh, we just talked about, you know... Everything being great when you're 12, you know, everything is the, at, at its finest and most pure when you're, you're when you're 12 years old, and uh, that's kind of how I like them. I like the X-Men being kind of on their own. That's not to say I don't like them crossing over into the Marvel universe, but I like it when the crossovers are special. You know, we we've had like the past couple of volumes of Uncanny, and I can't believe I'm saying the past couple of volumes of Uncanny have almost been. Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D. guest-starring the X-Men. And uh, that's not the X-Men I want to read. If you want to have Captain America show up, make it special. If you want to have Maria Friggin' Hill of S.H.I.E.L.D. show up, make it special. Don't just make it the next issue. Um, I mean, more about the Avengers. I hated Wolverine joining the Avengers. I hated Beast going back to the Avengers. I hated Storm joining the Avengers. Um, I hated Storm joining the Fantastic Four. I didn't like young Cyclops on the Champions. Uh, that just didn't feel right to me. Um, I, I mean, we're we, we we would never the Scarlet Witch in the X Men. You know, she's a mutant or was a mutant. I don't know if she's back is to being a mutant, but uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't put her in the X Men. But we can but we can put all the X Men in the Avengers. It's I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I was the one guy at my comic shop to get the I'm with the X-Men pin when AVX hit, so maybe it's just my own sour grapes. Uh, back to Al's message, he says, Okay, the Legion of Superheroes is pointless. I'm normally okay with allowing others to be wrong, but now I have to find some reason to podcast about an issue of Legion and to have you on, either to convert you or just torture you. I'm not sure which yet. <laughs> and uh, you're, uh, you're in, I, I, would, I will gladly take your invitation, for sure, uh, for starters. And, uh, I mean, right now, I'm just living life how DC Comics trained me to live it. Uh, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't just imagine a six-year span with no Legion books, right? I mean, DC has treated them like they don't matter for more or less my entire fandom career. You know, I remember Keith Giffen blowing up the earth in an issue of Legion just to see if his editors noticed, and they didn't, <laughs> you know? Now, that said, I'll be fair here. There are some issues of Legion that I read as a one-off for the Chris Zine of Earth's blog, and when they're character-based, I will concede that they can be very good. Um, I think I was at Legion 306 with Starman or Starboy on the cover. I, I thought that was a fine issue. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, when they are character-based, I could be all about it. Uh, and actually, you know, 
on that subject a few years ago, I was actually all set to put out a show uh, on this channel called Learn Me the Legion. And uh, the point of that was going to be I was going to be teamed with a long-tenured fan of the Legion of Superheroes, and they would teach me what was so special about them. Because I I really... I ha- For some reason, I own about 400 issues of Legion of Superheroes. I think I've read about six of them. <laughs> I, I'm an idiot. I'm a pack rat. But uh, I want to know what's special about them. Because... You know, I have so many of them, I might as well enjoy them. I would love to know what's so special about the Legion. I would like to finally learn and get the Legion. So, unfortunately, that show fell through, though. If anyone listening would like to you know, learn me the Legion, uh, please reach out, because I'm I'm still down for that project. Uh, Al, if, if you're out there, let me know. Uh, but Al wraps up his message with That's all for now. On to episode 5 and Powers of X number 3. So, thank you so much for reaching out, Al. I'm I'm very happy that you're following along and that you're uh, that you're reaching out. I, I it's funny. I, I I'm in a weird position now where I'm less X lapsed than somebody, <laughs> which is weird. Um, so the things that Al's learning here, I get to see these from the other side now. You know, where I was coming into this making these like wild predictions, like maybe it's Mister Sinister under the Cerebro helmet. You know, these silly. Well, maybe not silly, but these sort of outlandish predictions, hot takes I was making. And the folks who were listening, who already knew the answers, were kind enough not to spoil me on it. And I know if Al's listening as he's reading, he's not getting to these episodes for a little while, so I don't have to worry about spoiling them. And, I mean, we, we've, we've kind of gone through the whole story as it is, so all he would have to do is listen, and it would be so spoiled. But it's so interesting to me to start getting the hot takes from someone who's just starting. Because, uh, not that I know so much more, but I get to compare his experience to my own. I, I think that's a lot of fun. So thank you for, uh, for reaching out, Al. That, that means a whole lot to me, that, uh, that you are following along and you're engaging. So, with that said, if anybody else would like to reach out and engage, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all the good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, all the XLAP stuff at XLAPS.Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Audio archives are at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. You can find this show, Moratory Mondays, which we got some bangers coming up, big time. Uh, I'm also in talks to maybe do a maze agency show from uh, Comico and uh, whatever other company they went to after Comico. Um, got some stuff cooking. Got some stuff cooking. Maybe Christmas on Infinite Earths. Well, maybe we'll kick that off too. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a fool with my time and uh, and uh, eyes bigger than belly when it comes to projects. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about and a lot of things that I want to have reasons to read. Or reread, so we'll see how it goes. But I think that's where I'll leave it for today. Uh, once again, a huge thank you for everyone listening to this milestone twenty-fifth episode. Here's to uh, here's to uh, a bunch more, right? <laughs> but till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 36 of x Labs, where we're going to be wrapping up the Dawn of X, Wave 1, number 4s. And we do so with, uh, well, the book that usually starts the charge. It's actually uh, the anchor book of the number 4s, and that is X-Men, volume 5, number 4. This had a March 2020 cover date. The story is called Global Economics, written by the head of X himself, Jonathan Hickman, pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, inks by... Jerry Allen Gillen and Lionel Yu. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bezel White Sabolsky. Had a cover price of $3.99. And Happy New Year. This one went on sale January 1st, 2020. Now we open with our roll call, and it's a fairly short one. We've got Cyclops, Magneto, Charles Xavier, Apocalypse, and Gorgon. And we open in uh, Davos, Switzerland, or maybe Davos, Switzerland. I'm said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. I'm not a worldly guy. I don't know how to pronounce things. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce things in my own country, much less anywhere else. Uh, this is Switzerland, though, and uh, this is a meeting of the World Economic Forum. So now, since Krakoa is, you know, now a thing, and is now acknowledged by many as being an actual nation or world power, several members of its government have been invited to the table. And uh, these are the autumn seats of the Quiet Council, which, if you missed the roll call 15 seconds ago, would be uh, Professor X, Magneto, and A. They're accompanied by two of the great captains of Krakoa, and, well, yeah, it's Cyclops and Gorgon. Hey, then we get our credits, so I guess we're going for, like, the cinematic presentation for this one here. We get the little before, and then we get the credits, and then we go into the comic. So, let's get back into the comic. And uh, the Krakoan contingent has entered whatever building this meeting of the minds is taking place at, and they're uh, met with a semi-warm reception. Now, the autumn seats are granted access to the meeting room, while the captains are advised they're going to have to stay outside. Cyclops is pretty cool with this, but uh, Gorgon gets kind of gets in the face of one of the, uh, the dudes here, you know, threatening to use his sword. And so, we follow Xavier and, and company into the meeting room, where they find themselves seated at a table with dignitaries from Wakanda, China, and the United States, as well as several VIPs from Brazil, Italy, Switzerland, and India. Huh, an ambassador from the United States. I wonder who's going to be the bad guy here. Hmm. 
Anyway, from here we get a full full info page on to list all these folks here, as well as to give us the menu for the meal that they'll share during this meeting, because I'm sure we all wanted to know that they'd be eating watermelon gazpacho. <sighs> Anywho, after introductions are made, our diners all toast to peace. Worth noting, Magneto is referred to here as Eric. Is he back to being Eric Lenscher? Uh, last I read X-Men, they had like this bug up their butt about calling him Max Eisenhot. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. It's also worth noting that Apocalypse introduces himself as Apocalypse, stating that uh, humans are unfit to refer to him by anything else, and I think I prove that every time I call him A. We flash to the floor above, where a gaggle of geeks is preparing to attack. They're wearing like these sort of like baubles on their heads to interfere with uh, Xavier's mind readability. But that doesn't stop the professor from, you know, sussing them out to begin with. He knows they're there, he just doesn't know what they're thinking. Now, while the pleasantries continue to be exchanged, Xavier contacts Cyclops telepathically to inform he and Gorgon about the pressing threat. Xavier tells them to, quote, be good boys and take care of the bad guys, which I, I don't know, that doesn't feel like a, how a natural conversation between Scott and Charles might go. Calling them, be good boys, I mean, saying be good boys, that's a little cute, but let's get back to it. The meal has been served here, and Magneto is speaking with some dignitaries about this new normal, the new normal that is Krakoa, and how everyone needs to adapt and accept it. Hodari, the Wakandan attaché, suggests that Krakoa is working in their own best interests, but he adds that that's just what countries and nations do, so it's some sort of national common ground here. Everybody's out for themselves, trying to, you know, look out for their, their own best interests. Now, Magneto uses this, you know, polite opening to try and sway Wakanda into signing their treaty, to which Hodari smiles, but politely declines. The Indian representative questions Krakoa uh, closing off its borders to the rest of the world, and wonders if that's, you know, the best play here, when, you know, when a new nation is trying to establish itself and to be trusted within the global marketplace and power structure. From here, our douchebag U.S. ambassador puts it a little bit more bluntly, while tugging on his left ear very obviously. He basically calls the mutants out as being cowards, which perks Apocalypse to raise an eyebrow. Uh, or, a, I don't know if I'm allowed to call him that here, since I am human. Um, he asks if, he, uh, if it truly feels as though the mutants are in hiding on Krakoa, but the subject will you know, soon change. But first, let's look at this for a second. We've got yet another very safe target in these Dawn of X books. Over the past few episodes, we've had, you know, screeds against big pharma, big corporations, the CIA, and now a U.S. ambassador. Uh, I mean, when we started this, I referred to the writing as, uh, at the risk of swiping a DC Comics property, I, 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 I refer to it as being brave and bold. These targets they've chosen are anything but... Now, Magneto steers the conversation back to the reason they're here, and, duh, Krakow and Miracle Drugs. One of the ambassadors doesn't completely trust these drugs, and wonders about, like, the frequency in which they'll have to be taken, you know? Perhaps fearing that, uh, you know, once they start taking them, they're going to be, like, in service to the mutants forever, you know? So they won't be able to stop, and they'll just be, be dependent on them. From here, Magneto quotes Huxley, which is, I don't know, I think it's supposed to be deep, clever, I don't know. All the while this is going on, Cyclops is blasting the hell out of some of the bad guys on that other floor. One of the dignitary kind of laughs that Magneto had to quote a human author since, you know, there really aren't that many notable mutant writers. Magneto says, hey, don't worry about it, there will be. 
The U.S. ambassador douchebag continues tugging on his left ear, rather obviously. I wonder what that's all about. Uh, Magneto continues uh, kind of tearing into human institutions. Uh, he comments that every thousand or so years, humans kind of ruin everything and have to start over from scratch. He cites the end of the Bronze Age as an example. U.S. Ambassador Riley gives the big ol' who cares, to which Apocalypse comments that he does, since, you know, he was there when the Bronze Age fell, and what more, he was the cause of it. Oh, and while this is going on, Cyclops is still fighting dudes. Another dignitary comments that she fears this sort of posturing from the mutants can only lead to war. Magneto corrects her. He says, you know, maybe the old Magneto would do something to trigger a conflict, but this is a new, an all-new and all-different Magneto, and he would not do that. This time out, they're prepared to have uh, maybe a non-violent sort of war. Magneto lays it out here. With their drugs, they're going to take everybody's money. With that money, they're going to buy everything, including banks, schools, the media, politicians, and then just the world. Uh, They'll remove people they deem as unfit from having any economic power, which will ultimately snuff them out. And so, ipso facto, uh, without bad ideas and bad people, there will be no war. And uh, the rest of the table is justifiably gobsmacked here. They're just like, "Uh uh-huh. Now, Cyclops reports back to Xavier that he and Gorgon have taken care of the threat and this takes us to an info page, which reintroduces us to the Krakoan captains, and uh, we'll go through them here. Why not? Cyclops is the captain commander of the X-Men. Magic is the captain of the Sextant. Bishop is the captain of Hellfire Trading, and Gorgon is captain and council guard, meaning that Gorgon is responsible to guard all the members of the Quiet Council. Speaking of Gorgon, we get a page of him. We join him, and he's amid a pile of bloody bodies. Looks like he spares one of them. I... I I don't know that he... (laughs) I thought they weren't supposed to kill people, but it sure looks like there's a lot of dead bodies here. But uh, he spares one of them, and he suggests that the bad guy maybe embrace his mercy, you know? (laughs) Don't look a gift horse in the mouth here. You were spared for, you know, for my, you know, good mood, I guess. Back at the table, Magneto notices that Riley keeps tugging on his ear, which, I mean, it's been very, very unsubtle this whole time, right? Uh, That is to say, the dude might as well have been wearing a neon sign, right? Uh, Magneto advises Riley that they are not coming. He then fills in the rest of the table about the bad guys Riley planted on the other floor. Riley starts to get all panicky and starts throwing around accusations, and uh, honestly, with as blustery and blowhardy this character is, I'm surprised he wasn't drawn as being fat and sweaty. I think that's usually the the go-to art shorthand for this kind of a character. Anywho, amid his blustering, he questions how long this piece the mutants speak of might persevere. Xavier calmly responds with, One month. He informs the table that Riley sent that Wetworks team to Krakoa to kill him, which flashes us back to the final page of X-Force number one. Riley flat out denies the charge. Magneto doesn't buy it, but informs the table that Krakoa has a law prohibiting them to respond in kind. You know, that kill no man uh, precedent. Xavier removes his Cerebro helmet, and he goes on to give a speech. He says he still loves the humans, and despite everything, he'll never stop believing them in them. With a smirk, he again accuses Riley of sending the killers to Krakoa and suggests that he had similar designs today with his cadre of uh, easily disposed of geeks. Riley looks to his peers, trying to get them to see reason. You know, the mutants want to take over the world, and uh, humanity is just expected to simply let them? Xavier puts his helmet back on and assures the table that the next time something like this happens, it won't end the same way. 
Magneto thanks the table for being such good teachers, showing them everything not to do in creating and growing a nation. Our Krakoan contingent leaves the meeting, with Magneto suggesting nobody ever attempt to try them again, because if and when they do, they damn sure gonna get a response. And that is where we leave X-Men number four. And uh, next up, we have Marauders number five, which uh, I'm, I'm rather looking forward to. But first, let's talk about this issue. Now, if you remember from last episode, if uh, for the handful of people that actually listened to Fallen Angels Day, because <laughs> the numbers on, on Fallen Angels Day is a little, a little rough. <laughs> and, you know, I totally understand why. It's a... Uh, it's not a great book. <laughs> and if anybody wants to listen to you know thirty plus minutes of me complaining about a bad book, yeah, I don't think that's a that's something people want to do. But when we discussed the horrendously dull Fallen Angels number four, I commented that if we're going to continue this project and see it through, these books are going to have to improve and fast. So here's the question: Was X Men number four an upswing in quality? Undoubtedly, though. It's not exactly a high bar to clear, is it? Another question, was it fun to read? I don't know. I really can't say that it was a blast. Um, I mean, this is a book and an era that abuses the info page format, right? I complained, or I've observed, that we have a lot of info pages. And here we get an entire issue that might have been better summed up in just a handful of text pages. I mean, we get some info here. We get some accusations. We get Magneto carrying himself with a uh, with a swell amount of swagger. But still, I can't say as though I had a whole lot of fun with it. Now, something about this issue that I've been sort of commenting on in other discussions is how these Dawn of X books are taking on really safe targets. Like we weren't going to have Magneto butt heads with the Wakandan attaché here, right? It had to be the stupid American. And I'm not a jingoist by any definition of the word, but to use the American as the mustache-twirling bad guy, it feels kind of like lazy, low-hanging fruit type of writing, you know? This is the sort of writing that's not going to offend anybody except the people you want for it to offend, you know? Does that make any sense? You know, personally, I'm not offended by the content, but perhaps more, more so by, like, the intent and just the laziness of the effort. I mean, this isn't deep writing. This is... This is straw manning, and it's, uh, it's lazy. Um, now, speaking of potentially low-effort writing, Magneto says that they're going to remove certain people from power, and I'm already kind of cringing at the thought of this uh, potential parade of straw men that we're about to see trotted out. I mean, a current-year Marvel book calling out and canceling people? Yeah, we're going to need an adamantium-laced umbrella to save us from those anvils. Now, Magneto... You know, warts and all here, he had some pretty good lines. Um, and it's strange that he was given, you know, the pulpit more so than Xavier. Xavier really didn't do a whole heck of a lot, but make a sort of forced-sounding speech at the end, wherein he accused Riley of sending the Wetworks geeks to Krakoa. We don't actually get any confirmation of that. Are we to assume that Riley's lying? Are we to assume that Riley's part of the Xeno Collective? Um... On that subject here, was Riley one of the ambassadors that Magneto gave that tour to all the way back in House of X number one? I, I want to say he was. I couldn't say for sure, but I do remember um, the an American delegate or an American ambassador uh, being made to look quite the fool, and I think he tried to pull a gun on a guy who 
has the power of magnetism, so there's that. Uh, the Cyclops and Gorgon intercuts were there. Not sure we needed so many of them. Though, in fairness, by the end of the issue, it clearly feels as though Magneto and the gang were running out of uh, clever things to say and clever points to make, so any expenditure of panels away from the table of power was probably a good thing. Uh, the art felt uh, a little weaker than usual. Uh, Lionel, you seems like he's trying to morph into like a Gary Frankel-like here, uh, and he's doing so with limited success. A few of the faces we see here almost seem blatantly swiped from a Gary Frank work, while others just sort of look blobby and without features. It's a mixed bag. Though, uh, for at least part of this issue, uh, Lionel inked his own pencils, so maybe that has something to do with the inconsistency here. I... I'm not a much of a, uh, enough of an art expert to uh, say one way or another. Overall, though, how did I feel about this issue? I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, it's better than the last issue of X-Men we looked at, and uh, world's better than the books we discussed over the previous three episodes, but still kind of weak for what I, what I thought was going to be like the flagship book of this line, you know, the straw that stirred the drink. I expected more, but... You know, hey, that might just be my problem. Maybe I'm... <laughs> I shouldn't get mad at something for not being what I want it to be, and uh, maybe I'm just going into this book in particular with uh, expectations a little bit too high. But, you know, liked it, didn't love it. Don't know what to expect next issue. Um, I don't know if we'll go back to the old biddies again or if we're going to be onto something else altogether. So we'll see, uh, you know, a handful of episodes down the line where that goes. But uh, since we did just wrap up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 4s, Let's rank them. Let's rank them here. And uh, it's getting harder and harder to rank these things because uh, the quality is uh, kind of uh, all over the place. Um, number one book of the, of, the, of the month here, or of the number fours, is, uh, is Marauders, of course. Marauders was the strongest book this time out. Followed, surprisingly, uh, you know, for me, by Excalibur. I think the Excalibur books have always been in teetering around the fourth and fifth of the list, and here it is at number two for me. Uh, this issue, X-Men number four, would come in in the number three spot, followed by New Mutants, then X-Force, and then finally Fallen Angels. So Marauders, Excalibur, X-Men, New Mutants, X-Force, Fallen Angels are my rankings. I look forward to hearing uh, some of your rankings to see uh, where you place these books. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe this X-Men, my take on this X-Men issue may differ from some folks's because uh, I've heard some good things about this run, um, though without any kind of specificity. So um, we'll see. We'll see how, uh, how folks uh, agree or disagree. I, I, I encourage anyone to reach out. But uh, speaking of reaching out, we do have some uh, mail to attend to here. And uh, we're going to start with Damien. And he's talking about New Mutants number four. And he says, I've been reading... This is all regarding uh, Boom Boom's characterization in New Mutants number four, which I uh, took issue with. And uh, we're going to see here that Damien agrees. So he says, I've been reading Boom Boom stories right from the start. I picked up the Marvel UK reprint of Secret Wars 2, number 5, way back in 1986. It always sticks in my mind as they reprinted it with an amazing Kerry Gamble cover from Marvel Age Annual number 1. I transferred to Marvel US by the time she made her second appearance in X-Factor, and I picked up every single appearance of her until I had to cut back on comics when I went to university in 1992. This means she's one of the characters who I know their early history really well. 
This means I find this issue of New Mutants infuriating. And uh, Damien is about to raise a point that I had totally forgotten about. He says, in her very, very earliest stories, it is established that her father is a drunk who beat her. This is why she runs away from home. It's why she's angry and rebellious. I do not believe that Boom Boom would get drunk enough to fall flat on her face more than once in her life. In fact, I imagine her refusing to join the party because she's expected to be there. Bingo. I totally, it totally slipped my mind that she'd run away from home because of the abuse she received at the hands of her drunken father. You'd have to assume that uh, with that being this you know, huge turning point in her life, she'd it would stand to be to reason she'd be a lot less likely to imbibe to the point where she can't even stand on her own two feet, much less. And I mean, every scene we see her in here, she's carrying a damn bottle of whiskey with her every time we see her. No matter where she is, where she goes, she's carrying a bottle. Unless, of course, we're headed toward an intervention story, which I joked about during one of the New Mutants issues we talked about, as saying that is not a story I care to ever read because. No, I don't need that in my life. Damien continues, I know why she's so out of character. It's all down to Next Wave. Even Jemison Casada, who could be incredibly lax with continuity, were wise enough to say Next Wave was out of continuity. I still do, I still do not understand how it was decided to recreate Boom Boom as a Paris Hilton stand-in. I can't think of a less appropriate character beat. Who's equating a scrappy streetwise runaway with a spoilt heiress? Nonsense. And you know... I remember feeling, you know, back in the mid, mid-aughts, mid I think we called them, uh, I remember feeling like sort of a man on an island for not really caring about, caring for Next Wave. Um, it wasn't because of Boom Boom or anything. I just thought the concept was a little too, you know, LOL random. At a time before, LOL random was like the, the language of comedy on the internet. <laughs> I just, it really, it really annoyed me. I thought it was pretty to look at, but it really annoyed me. Uh, Damien continues. Of course, the decision to bring Next Wave into continuity was made a few years ago in the Avengers books, and I'm sure is an influence on this Boom Boom. I just wish it wasn't. And now, this whole continuity wrinkle is news to me because I never assumed that it wasn't in continuity. Um, you know, the Casada era of Marvel was, as you put it, lax with continuity, and I think that might be putting it kindly. I'd suggest that Joe Q was more of a... At the risk of coming across crass, um, a star effer. I think that's what we would say, who would let pretty much anybody stomp all over the Marvel pantheon of characters if it meant he'd get a call from USA Today or be tagged in a Joss Whedon or Kevin Smith tweet. He would do whatever it took. Uh, With that said, I assume Warren Ellis was just given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with whatever characters he wanted until, as it usually goes with Warren, he gets tired of them and moves on. Usually vowing never to write superhero comics again until six months later when we start the cycle all over again. Uh, Damien continues, My feelings about Boom Boom really colored my reaction to the whole book, but there were some good points. As you said, it's interesting to see a drug cartel wanting to control the Krakoan drugs. They lay on the drug dealers slash big pharma comparisons a bit too heavily, but it's a different approach. I was also pleased to see the link back to the Hoxpox info pages about countries who wouldn't trade officially with Krakoa. Knowing that things are planned gives me more confidence in the direction of Dawn of X. And totally, the uh, cartel angle was interesting and creative. Uh, though, as you, as you say here, the big farmer bits were laid on a little thick. I've got like a real... It's probably wildly apparent here, but I got a pet peeve about writers using low-hanging fruit. Um, I mean, I said it today when we were talking about X-Men number four. It's just so low, low effort, and it looks like you're saying something. You know, taking a position 
when you're really just not. Um, it's like, what's next? Maybe next time out, Marvel Girl and Storm will visit like a Walmart-like store and find something to complain about. Or maybe Strong Guy will visit a McDonald's-like fast food place and find something to complain about. I mean, if you're going to come across as self-righteous, at least be a little bold. Stop picking the easy targets. You know, give us, the readers, a reason to think critically. And maybe maybe don't waste our time so much parroting late-night talk show hosts with the, with the easy targets here. Uh, Damien continues. You're absolutely right that the twins are creepy. I didn't know that they were pre-existing characters. It seems like none of the other people in the story are familiar with them. I wonder if they'll become villains. Uh, they seem to be to enjoy escalating the violence between the kidnappers, and uh, I did check the wiki on them, and I guess they were used as hounds for Ahab during the extermination miniseries, which I still haven't gotten around to reading, but it is sitting on the shelf waiting for me. Um, it looks like they were also part of whatever the hell Age of X-Men was as well. Um, I'm guessing it was probably a different version of them, because from what little I know of Age of X-Men, X- Age of X-Men... It was sort of like another universe, another dimension, right? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) All I know is when I look at the covers of those, I kind of cringe a little bit. Uh, Damien continues. It seems a really odd choice to return to the Shi'ar next issue when I seem to remember this story being a three-parter. Weird. And yeah, it's it's kind of all over the place, isn't it? Um, If this is a three-parter, if you're remembering right, why not just bang them all out in a row? Um, I will say, though, it now makes a little bit more sense why some of the Dawn of X reading order lists I've been trying to, trying to, like, decode and figure out, they list the New Mutants issues, like, out of order, you know, so, uh, now I see why. And I gotta wonder if maybe these two issues coming out in one month was just giving Jonathan Hickman a break, helping him stay afloat with his X-books and his other obligations, because otherwise this makes zero sense at all. Um, it really, I mean, the, how jarring it was going from the Shi'ar to the farm, and now we're going back from the farm to the Shi'ar, and we're just going to go back from the Shi'ar to the farm again after that. It's, it's very disjointed. Now, uh, uh, Damien wraps up his message with, uh, by the way, I really enjoyed your coverage of the Texas book, and this is Uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas. It's always nice to see a bit of undiscovered Cary Gamble art. You did throw me with your mention of Equus, who I heard is Ekus, I, I think that's Ekus, which was the play where Harry Potter showed everyone his wand, and I've never, I've never seen Harry Potter. I've never, uh, uh, I don't know if I've made it clear on this show, I, I don't ever really see movies. Um, I can't sit still long enough to watch movies, so I don't see them. And, uh, yeah, I, I've never seen a Harry Potter, so I don't know how he, E-Q-U-U-S is pronounced. <laughs> Then again, I don't know how E-Q-U-E-S is pronounced either. I just took a shot at it. But uh, thank you so much for checking it out. Uh, That piece was a long time coming. I actually wanted to cover it on the blog ever since I found it, like a year and a half ago. But uh, back then when I did find it, uh, Chris's On Infinite Earths was a strictly DC Comics-only blog. I kind of imposed rules on myself, and they were unflinchingly rigid, and, and they only mattered to me, but I'm a pretty weird dude, so I, I adhered to them. Now, after some life-altering events earlier this year occurred, I stopped caring so much about the rules and decided to just write about whatever the hell I felt like writing. And uh, I also allowed myself to include things like podcasts on chrisoninfiniteearth.com, which was uh, previously sort of like a church and state, you know, don't cross the stream sort of thing for me in my head. You know, sort of like blog posts go here, podcasts go there, and never the two shall meet. 
Um, like I said, though, life-altering events happened, and I kind of got over myself and my rules. Now, the state fair issue was a lot of fun. I really love sharing things that, uh, you know, you don't see shared a dozen times a day on your social media platform of choice. Because, honestly, there's, like, only so many times you can see someone share Spider-Man cradling Gwen Stacy's dead body before you just get tired of it. Though, in fairness, every time that is shared, which is, I think, every 12 seconds, it does get hundreds of bits of engagement. So maybe I should just start doing that. Uh, sad as it might sound, I kind of pride myself on trying to give folks who bother to follow me something new and novel to look at, rather than the cheap heat. <laughs> you know, I do what I can. But uh, thank you so much for the message, Damien. Uh, next, we have a message from Ed Moore, and this is regarding the reading order per post the Dawn of X number sixes that I talked about last episode here, because we only get a list in the back of these books that go up to issue six, and then... It's the Wild West. <laughs> it's I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, Ed says, as I asked about um, the miniseries, we have uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, and we also have Empire colon X-Men coming up, and I asked how to do those. You know, how would, would we do those here? And Ed says, I would do Empire as an episode and X-Men FF as an episode. The only downside is that it would be longer than your normal X-Labs shows. And here's kind of what I'm thinking. I like the idea of doing these ser- these mini-series all in a row, like without six or seven episodes between each installment. What I might do is, say, have, you know, episodes of X-Men Fantastic Four all in a row, right? So we'll do... On, if, if, if Monday is the day we do one, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll do two, three, and four, knock them all out. So all four episodes dedicated to the mini-series. My question from here is where would something like that fit? You know, do I do all four around the time the first issue would have hit the stands? Or do I do all four when the last issue would have hit the stands? Um, Maybe I'll just include the list of X-Book releases from February 2020 until now on the blog and see if we can't all put our heads together and plot a course here. Um, I think the ship has already kind of sailed as it pertains to covering these issues in like a legit chronological order. Since we are getting flashbacks and flash-forwards as we're being released here, I mean, in Fallen Angels number one, it looks like Betsy's first mission as Captain Britain was already done. You know, I mean, hell, Fallen Angels probably should have been done all in one episode because uh, it still would have been a short one. Uh, We saw that Cypher was already back from Shi'ar Space in X-Force number four. We've got the weird New Mutants jumping from story to story. A lot of -of out-of-order stuff, right? So maybe when, like, all said and done, and, like, I don't know, Dusk of X or Sunset of X or whatever they're going to wrap this era up with happens, maybe then I'll put together, like, a chronological playlist of how these episodes ought to go. But uh, we've hopefully got months and months and months and months and months before we have to worry about that, though. Again, this is Marvel. So, I mean, I could check uh, Bleeding Cool right now and find out that, uh, hey, you know, Dawn of X is done. But uh, we'll see. But thank you for the uh, for the uh, suggestion there, Ed, and we will uh, we'll see how it goes. We will see how it goes. Uh, finally, we have a tweet from uh, Sean Ross from Pulp to Pixel and Secret Wars and Beyond. He's also uh, the Alpha Flight co-host for From Claremont to Claremont, and he's discussing uh, uh, what is it, Fallen Angels number four. He says, "I really like the creative team, but man, this was a rough read." And yes, it was. <laughs> And like I've said uh, in previous episodes here, I've heard good things 
about Brian Hill's work uh, over at DC, but I haven't read any of it. I have heard good things about Batman and the Outsiders. Um, and si- uh, Simon Kudransky, I enjoy him on Spawn. So, I mean, uh, that seems like a recipe for something good, right? Some good creators, and uh, th- yeah, this is a rough one. <laughs> this is a rough one. And, you know, the fact that these, re- these creators are held in somewhat of a regard makes it makes me question whether or not I should like express an opinion because uh, I find so much of what we encounter online is uh, I don't know I, I feel like I feel like the uh, there's a currency on on giving giving better reviews than books sometimes deserve because it uh, legitimizes us because we'll get a retweet from a creator or something or we'll get a uh, we'll get an attaboy from a creator and that's why I kind of second guess a lot of reviews I see online where we're giving books 10 out of 10 scores which they say 10 out of 10 isn't perfect but to me 10 out of 10 is as high as you can go that means you can't get any better <laughs> so I always get a little nervous when I when I express my honest opinion about a book because I, I don't want to one of the things I say is that uh, I don't think any writer wakes up in the morning and says I'm going to write a bad comic book today and uh, I don't think Brian Hill did that. I don't think he woke up and said, I'm going to write a really boring Quanon story today. And yet here we are. Um, yeah, it's a toughie. It's a toughie to get through. Uh, thankfully, we've only got two more to go. But uh, thank you so much for reaching out, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for uh, reaching out. If, uh, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find stuffs at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. On Facebook at 90sXmen. On Tumblr at x-lapsed something or another. Uh, one of these days I'm going to have to actually figure out what that address is so I can... Stop sounding like an idiot when I promote it half-heartedly. Um, the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Lots of good stuff there. Lots of fun stuff and lots more stuff to come there. So uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for reaching out and uh, and listening and lending me your ears. It uh, really means a lot to me. Next time we will be discussing Marauders and uh, my hopes are high. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll see that when we get there. But uh, another huge thank you, and uh, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
This is Chris. Welcome to episode number 42 of X Lapsed. And uh, here we are, wrapping up the number fives. Uh, makes me feel like we uh, made a pretty sizable dent in these uh, these books so far. Of course, no sooner do I say that than uh, turns out it's DCBS Day at the house. My package of uh, comics from last month all showed up and uh, added, uh, I think, nine more to the pile. So, uh, eh, you know, it's... Uh, I guess uh, we take a couple of steps forward and we take a, a few steps back, too. Uh, I think if my you know, voodoo math is right, uh, we'll probably catch up with the line sometime in the spring. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's middle of October right now, so we've, uh, we've got a lot of books ahead of us here. But let's, uh, without any further ado, let's hop into the, uh, the final number five here. This is X-Men Volume 5, number five. Had a cover date of March 2020. Stories called Into the Vault, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by the returning R.B. Silva, our, our artist from uh, Powers of X here, and uh, also our colorist from Powers of X, Marty Gracia. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa white Sabolski. cover price $3.99, and went on sale January fifteenth, 2020. Now we open with a page comprised of three completely black panels, followed by two featuring Cyclops. He asks himself what he could have been thinking and considers what he had just done. So, uh, well, what did he do? Well, we'll find out at the other end of the book. First, we got credits. Then, we got roll call. This uh, book will feature Cyclops, Wolverine, Professor X, Armor, Storm, Darwin, Sink, X-23, and Serafina. So, I I guess uh, that was Serafina, not uh, Neg- Negasonic Teenage whatever back in uh, X-Men number one like I had posited. It's been a long time since I've read books of that era, so I wasn't exactly sure who we were seeing, and I figured the Teenage Warhead was uh, more, of a, more of a cheap pop than uh, Serafina, but I guess that's who we got, and we'll, we'll see more of her in this issue. Now, I'd like to, before we get into it, I feel like I really need to take this opportunity to apologize to the mid-2000s Marvel books, where the first page of every single issue would be like part text catch-up and creator credits and a roll call. And back then, you know, 2005, 2006, I hated that we wasted a whole page on that. But I tell you what, I hate even more that now we're wasting three. Back to comics. We're in Ecuador. Serafina, this is the post-human child from the vault, she's fleeing from someone and happens across a couple of ponchoed fellas in the jungle. She uses her hoodoo to try to get them to stop whoever's following her. Unfortunately for, well, pretty much everyone involved, the person following her is Wolverine. And he's, uh, he's looking pretty damn good for a dude who was just ripped in half in the pages of X-Force, doesn't he? Oh well. Now the poor locals are able to slow him down for a couple of beautiful R.B. Silva pages, but their attempts at overwhelming him are, duh, futile. Wolverine continues making his way through the jungle before arriving at a dried-up old sentinel factory. Which, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the, uh, like Cassandra Nova's hidey holes back in the long ago, uh, and it's also where the children of the vault wound up after their appearance back in... Those issues I haven't read in a very long time. Uh, Mid-2000s era, 
I want to say X-Men Volume 2. So, really good continuity there. I'm happy to see a callback like that. Anywho, Serafina looks to have given Wolverine the slip, leaving our hero locked out of the Wild Sentinel factory. We now follow Serafina inside the vault, and it's all manner of strange. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, anybody who's played the Assassin's Creed games. You'll, you'll know you come across those weird futuristic areas that are like all digital and stuff, and uh, got like weird monoliths and spires and, you know, all futuristic doodads. It's pretty much what we're looking at here. Um, and we're in full-page spread land here as well, with very sparse art. Just the bottom half of the page has a figure and maybe a little bit of a, of a you know, background. And then on the top, it's just it's just digital text. And, uh, I don't know, it's not the last time we're going to see imagery like this today. From here, we jump back to Krakoa, where Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, and Professor X are trying to plan their next move against Serafina and the children. Now, Storm reminds us all the time flows very differently inside the vault. Cyclops plays up how the vault is also different from the rest of the world in that it's not evolutionarily based. Instead, it's about a human's ability to adapt to technology. From here, we get a look at the strike force that's being addressed, and it's Sink, who I don't know if we've ever seen him on panel since he was killed in that really, really awful... Uh, Counter X arc of Generation X way back, you know, pre pre Morrison Casey even that was a long time ago. We also have Darwin from the Deadly Genesis team, uh, who I don't know that we've seen him since uh, he was running with X Factor Investigations, and X twenty three, who uh, we haven't seen since uh, well last episode uh, when she was trying to track down a path with Quanon, and uh, so I and that also came out I believe the same day as this issue. So yeah, we haven't seen her since today. And uh, I guess this book, this X-Men title, is taking Fallen Angels about as seriously as the rest of us. Uh, it is worth noting here that X-23 is in her all-new Wolverine costume. So, we know the danger of this mission and uh, the reasons for this team of the lucky ones to, you know, to head on in. We find out that Darwin's abilities allow him to adapt. Oh, we get a refresher on that, I should say. Uh, Sink can copy another mutant's power, and uh, X-23 is, well, she's like Wolverine. When Cyclops says this to her, she corrects him by saying, I'm not like Wolverine, I am Wolverine, and uh, Logan likes this. But I don't, because isn't the entire reason she's part of the horrendously dull Fallen Angels book is so she can step out of Wolverine's shadow? I mean, that's exactly what she said a few times in that book. Maybe the head of X hasn't actually read that, and if that's the case, lucky guy. Oh, Armor's here too. And uh, she wants the trio to know all the risks of this mission, so I guess she makes it off the farm okay? I guess we could just skip the next issues of Fallen Angels and New Mutants, right? Is this X-Men book in continuity, or is it the only book in continuity? I don't know. So let's talk about these risks. Cerebro can't track them inside the vault, so it'll have no way of knowing whether or not they're even still alive. And so they'll need to get in, get whatever info they're after, get out while still alive so that their memories can be immediately downloaded into Cerebro for safekeeping. Otherwise, this entire mission is for nothing. Wolverine then reminds everyone that the last time the vault opened, it had been closed for several thousand years. Those are several thousand years on the inside because time does flow differently, of course. Uh, now, this is, of course, where X-23 and company will be going, and none of our heroes seem all that bothered by the risk. From here, we jump to an info page. It's a medical report on Sink. 
and it looks like he was the 14th mutant to be resurrected, and was pushed toward the front of the line due to his ability to copy other mutants' powers, which makes it so he could easily stand in for any member of the Five, and I believe we heard that in, a, in an info page a long time ago. That does make me wonder, however, why they'd risk him in the vault. Right? I don't know. Speaking of the vault, let's go back there. And it's another couple of full-page spreads with some digital hoodoo filling the top halves. And it looks like the rest of the children of, of the vault are now up and at them. And the non-Serafina non ones are Pero, Sangre, Aguja, and Fuego. From here, later on, the X-Men arrive in Ecuador. Storm attempts to get the children's attention by commanding lightning to rain down on the dusty old wild sentinel head that tops the factory they're inhabiting. Cyclops assumes that this will trigger the vault's automated defense system, and what do you know, that's exactly what happens. With the system sort of compromised, we join our trio of would-be vaulters stood next to the door of, well, the vault. It begins to react to their presence, well, actually it's reacting to some repurposed Orcus technology that Forge had tinkered with, but hey, any old point in the storm, right? So Storm, hey, speaking of Storm, Storm, Cyclops, and Armor continue fighting the defense systems, and when the dust settles, they see that Sink, Darwin, and X-23 are no longer standing at the door. Which means, you know, they were able to get inside. We go from here to another two full-page spreads of sparse art and digital text, which reveals to us that, uh, yeah, those three heroes did make it inside. Unfortunately for them, they are immediately identified as anomalies, and the vault is about to react. We don't know exactly how it'll react, but our heroes fear the worst. Now, this issue wraps up much later, with Cyclops and Xavier talking about this very mission. We learn that, at this point, three months and five days have passed since the kids went inside, which Xavier deduces is probably akin to 537 years on the inside. And here we close with Cyclops asking himself what he could have been thinking and considers what he'd just done, so... Full circle, my friends. And that's where we leave it. Now, this is the first issue of the Dawn of X run that doesn't have a reading order list at the back of it. Uh, we do know what the next, you know, four or five books are because uh, the issues before this had that list that, that went through this month as well, or this half of the month as well. Um, I was actually flipping through a few later issues of X-Men just to see if I could find out exactly where to slot the Empire colon X-Men um, miniseries because I'd heard that it's made pretty clear where to put it. And I noticed that the, uh, the reading order lists came back. So maybe that was just a post-pandemic thing to make sure, you know, all the X-Fans knew everything they needed to pick up if they wanted to keep up with everything. So... There will be a list coming again soon. It'll be a little bit nebulous in the interim. Uh, we do have, I think we've got four more books that are on the list that we're working on now. And uh, But the next issue of X-Men we discuss uh, is not going to be X-Men number six. Instead, it'll be Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost. Um, the next episode will be Marauders number six, just like normal here. And I do have a tentative plan because I spend way too much time and I lose way too much sleep worrying about stupid crap that doesn't matter to anyone but me. We're going to spend the next five episodes cl closing out the Marvel-provided reading order that we have here, right? Then, with episode, I think, 47, we're going to hop into four episodes of X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Then, we're going to come back with Giant Size, Emma, and Jean. So, I hope that sounds good, because I already made the uh, the cover art for it. 
and hopefully hopefully that'll work out for everybody but uh before we get into any of that stuff how about we talk about what we just read here i'm not quite sure how i feel about this one um i don't want to slight it because it wasn't bad um i guess i'm just having a little bit of trouble reconciling the fact that uh this book that I sort of, like, knee-jerk expected to be the flagship for the line isn't really delivering exactly what I'm looking for, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, I don't want to be mad at it for not being what I want it to be when it was never intended to be what I wanted it to be, but I feel like from the very start of this volume of X-Men, rather than getting stories, story arcs, we're getting these weird, like, inch-deep, mile-wide looks at concepts that, to me, deserve to be mined a little bit more. Um, everything we're getting is interesting, but the one-off nature of these issues is really off-putting to me. I feel like just when I start getting into them, they're over. And if uh, if this series of, like, vignette issues is any indication, I'm not sure when or if these topics might come up again. You know, I'd, I'd question whether or not that summoner from issue two is going to come back, but... Like I mentioned, I got my DCBS order, and uh, the summoner's on the cover of X-Men number 12. Um, what happened to the old ladies from issue 3? I I, th- I could have sworn that issue ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Um, here in this issue, I, I don't know. It, it just feels like we spent a whole lot of pages setting something up, which maybe could have been told in far less. Um, sending X-23, Sink, and Darwin into the vault... That's basically all that happened here. I, I mean, yeah, we are in the age of decompression, but I don't know. I just I just wanted a little bit more, I guess. Um, speaking of the age we're in, uh, I probably shouldn't be annoyed that X-23 is here, despite being in Dubai or wherever fighting a path in another book that I think came out the very same day as this one. Uh, granted, I mean, time did pass. Time did elapse in this issue, three months or whatever. But, uh... I don't know, it's just current year comics, I guess. But it's like, we've got like a half dozen editors and a head of X on on this run here, on this line. Shouldn't there be a little bit more attention to this sort of thing? Because uh, it really, it takes what little wind was left in Fallen Angels sales out of it, doesn't it? Plus, this issue kind of neglects the only, the sole bit of characterization that X-23 has been given in Fallen Angels. She's with Quanon so she can get out of Logan's shadow. And here she is, back in her Wolverine costume, calling herself Wolverine. Really? I mean, that's the whole point of her being part of Fallen Angels. Come on. Also, Armor was here, when we still haven't wrapped up the New Mutants Farm story yet. And again, time did elapse in this issue, three months, but we don't know where these three months are. But, I mean... For simplicity's sake here, there are hundreds of mutants on Krakoa, right? Couldn't they have slid in another to accompany Storm and Cyclops to Ecuador? It's not like Armor did anything especially Armor-ist in, in, the, in the issue. I mean, where's Dazzler? Where's Vulcan? Polaris? Mag friggin' Nito? I mean, Pixie seems to make a cameo in every other issue. Why not stick her in there? I, I don't know. I probably shouldn't even bother mentioning that Lionel used cover shows armor with long hair when every time we've seen her post Hoxpox, it's been short. Thankfully, the interior art kept that little bit of continuity straight. Um, speaking of which, 
it was really cool to see the Powers of X team uh, back together with uh, Arby Silva and Mardi Gracia on art. Um, I think it gave a maybe a fairly sort of kind of lacking story a really cool look. Um, I think those six pages we spent inside the vault might have been a little, okay, a lot indulgent, but at least they look pretty, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can ask for. Um, overall, uh, I didn't hate it, but I was a little disappointed. Um, again, you know, I, I, I say this all the time. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to disregard something simply because it's not what I expected it to be. Because uh, that's not fair. You know, that's not fair to the creative, that's not fair to the story. Just because it's not what I expected from it doesn't make it bad. Um, what I was expecting was for this book to be the store, the straw that stirs the drink. I mean, it is the only book in the line called X-Men. So I was expecting this to be like the must-read every month. And so far, it it really hasn't been. I mean, as much as much uh, you know, Razin as I do on X Force. X Force feels more like the flagship book right now, because that's where everything's happening, right? I mean, we had Professor X dying and being reborn there. We we're actually going on missions and we're putting together teams. And X Force feels like as much <laughs> as as little love as I have for X Force. A lot of the time, it feels it feels important. If that makes sense, where X Men feels, and again, I I don't dislike it. It just doesn't feel as important as I feel like it maybe should. But uh, as we're talking about other books in this line here, uh, this does wrap up uh, the the issue fives from Wave One here. So, how about we rank these books here? Now, number one for me this uh, this time out for the Dawn of X Wave One number fives. Number one for me is New Mutants. I enjoyed New Mutants a hell of a lot. That was such a fun book. Um, loved seeing the old team again. And I wasn't too fond of the ending, but I mean, what are you going to do? You, you take what you can get. Uh, number two, and it's a very, very close number two, is Marauders. Marauders was another fantastic book this week. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, and you know, this is one, I think the first the first time we did rankings here with the issue ones, very similar feelings between New Mutants and Marauders here. It's like whichever one I think of last is my favorite. So that's that's not a bad place to be. Uh, the third slot would be this book, X-Men. Um, didn't love it, didn't hate it. It's just kind of there. Uh, the fourth place would be X-Force, because uh, I didn't hate that, but I didn't like it either. <laughs> Uh, these are these are ringing endorsements for this line, isn't it? Uh, five is Excalibur, that mess of an issue, and six, uh, holding on to the spot like uh, like its life depended on it is Fallen Angels. So, New Mutants, Marauders, X Men, X Force, Excalibur, Fallen Angels are my rankings for the Dawn of X Wave One number fives. Now, just one last thing before we get out of here, and we're gonna do a little bit of mailbag in here. We got a letter from Damien talking about New Mutants number 5. He says, I feel so much joy rereading this issue. Hickman does such a good job of writing these characters and their interactions. So many great moments from the recap. I love the disapproving look between Sam and Smasher when Bobby hands over his gift to the big fights, Karma getting the big guy to punch himself in the face. 
I keep praising Rod Reese and have tended to give him more credit than Hickman, but it really is the two of them working together that lifts this issue. I read the first X of Ten's New Mutants issue by Rod Reese and Ed Brisson today, and it looks good, but it's nowhere near as strong as this. And yeah, this is a uh, this is like a dream team, isn't it? Um, I, it's a wonderful book. It's uh, it's magic when the two of them are on it. Um, it's just a shame that we don't get more issues with the two of them on it, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, this has been this has been ab- an absolute treat. And I think when people look back, uh, this Shi'ar story might be one of the handful of New Mutant stories that people will want to revisit and remember. I mean, I-, I was on a show a couple months ago, I believe, or maybe a month ago, discussing the Demon Bear saga. I was on Source Material Live, and... Uh, and I was trying to think of other memorable New Mutants stories, because any time you talk about the New Mutants, it's like, oh yeah, the Demon Bear, you know? And, and I couldn't think of one that was really something that I would recommend. Like, oh, you need to track this down. You need to see this. Uh, I mean, the New Mutants is uh, the Marvel graphic novel and the Demon Bear. <laughs> and that's about it for, uh, you know, wildly memorable stories or... or or ones that you'd uh, that you could give to an outsider and 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 have them you know fall in love with the characters, but uh, I feel like maybe uh, maybe not as strong as those two, but I think this Shi'ar story has the potential of being something like that, where people could come back to this and uh, and have an enjoyment. I don't know that it'll be quite as evergreen, but I think uh, it, I think it's evergreenish for sure. Um, back to Damien, he says, "You seem to get stuck on Ilyana being flirtatious. Do you think we were supposed to ma- we were meant to take that seriously? I thought she was just meant to be distracting them. Maybe I'm too willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, as I've been loving how they're handling her. It's interesting to see her treated as being this at the same level as Cyclops and Bishop. And no, I didn't take it seriously. I I project a lot. I, I, I'm if anybody's listened to the past." Many, many, many hours of me talking. Uh, you probably have heard me say, maybe I'm projecting. And when I say maybe I'm projecting, it usually means I'm probably projecting. And so I, I do that a lot. And so, yes, I project, and I also have a weird sensitivity or maybe even like an allergy to things that I consider low effort. And when I see uh, Magic saying that she's here to fight or F... I look at that as very, very low effort, and I look at that as trying to, I don't know, get attention. Um, I mean, where it's really unnecessary, because the story they're telling is wonderful, the art is fantastic. I don't think you need to do that sort of low-hanging fruit here, but it looks like it's one of those panels that I would always say, like, when the writer wrote that panel, they started rubbing their hands together just waiting for the memes to start. Because it's like, oh, this is the X-Men now. Magic is saying she's here to fight or F. And, uh, I don't know, I just consider it low effort. <laughs> um, when it really didn't need it. Uh, but no, I, I didn't I didn't take it seriously. I didn't think she really wanted to uh, to bang the, uh, the scroll with the metal plate on his head. <laughs> and it is cool to see her treated as being... You know, similarly leveled to the other, uh, the other, what are they, captains, the other Krakoan captains. I think that's really cool, um, and lends, lends a bit of, of weight to the New Mutants team, you know, because I don't know if we've ever, like, since this started, have they been 
like a team, like officially, or are they just all bunking together because they grew up together? I like that she lends a bit of legitimacy to this team. Um, I do wish that maybe we'd share the spotlight a little bit. I, I'd like to see Danny get a little bit more uh, more play, but w- what they're doing with Magic outside of the line that I that I really didn't care for. Um, Ah, it's really good stuff. Really good stuff. I loved her taking command. I liked Sam being kind of off-put by that, or or at least confused by that. Um, good stuff. Really good stuff. And uh, Damien wraps up with, of course, we're back to the farm next issue, and I'm pretty sure I was not impressed with that issue. I, uh, I haven't been impressed with the farm overall yet, so uh, I'm not expecting big things. I'm not expecting great things. Uh, we saw armor in this issue, so I'm guessing she survives. <laughs> I'm guessing everything's going to be A-OK. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a downer to go from what we got there uh, in, in New Mutants number 5 to just back to the farm. Um, and also, I, I really just didn't, didn't like the cliffhanger because it's just, it's playing with the old tropes in this new world and it just doesn't, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't work for me but uh thank you so much damien for your thoughts and uh and for your uh correspondence i very much appreciate it uh if anyone out there would like to correspond with me you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or at ace comics on twitter uh, you can find show notes for this program and many many others and many many blog posts over at chris's on there's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's the Facebook page at 90s X-Men and uh, the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. There's a, a bit of a makeover coming for, uh, for a lot of the output here. Uh, pretty soon, pretty soon. But uh, everything will still be where, where, where I left it. So <laughs> it, won't be like, uh, it won't be like links will be changing or nothing. So everything will be at the same place. It's just going to hopefully look a little bit nicer and a little bit cleaner. But uh, we'll worry about that another day. Uh, I think that's where we will uh, put a pin in it for right now. I, I look forward to hearing from folks. I, I'd like to hear your guys' uh, your rankings for uh, the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 5s. Agree, disagree, either way. I'd love to hear it and love to talk about it. But... I think uh, just one huge thank you to everyone, and uh, until next time when we discuss Marauders number six that has the Executioner on the cover, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching for the real thing
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, I am dealing with some major allergies today. They're kind of kicking my butt, so if I sound a little raspy or a little hoarse, or uh, if I slip into some Peter Brady, uh, that's probably why. Uh, We're in that weird time where the weather's actually starting to change here in Arizona, where it's getting a little bit cooler. It's getting a lot cooler at night, and uh, never fails to wreak havoc with uh, with my sinuses and my nasal passages. Uh, This morning I was doing my my daily yoga and uh, Downward Dog was especially uncomfortable because it felt like my head was going to explode. But, uh, you know, just like the uh, the mailman, you know, got neither rain nor sleet nor stuffy nose will stop us from from meeting here to discuss another X-Men book. And, uh, well, today we got a doozy. We actually got a lot to talk about today with uh, this very special issue of, uh, of X-Men. So let's get right into it. This is episode 56, by the way. I don't know if I said that yet, but uh, there we are. This is episode 56. And the book we're discussing is X-Men, volume 5, number 6, which is uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of kismet, right? 56, 5, 6, eh, there you go. This one had an April 2020 cover date. The story's called The Oracle. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Matteo Bufagni. Colors by Sonny Goh. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale February 12th of 2020. So we open this sucker up and we are in flashback land. Distant flashback land. At least in real life. I don't know how... We'll talk about the sliding scale later. But we join Mystique and Destiny as they're watching a sunset. Though I suppose Mystique is... It's only Mystique actually watching it, but uh, suffice it to say, they're spending time together. Destiny is preparing to tell Raven something that she might find unbelievable, but something she promises will truly come to pass. Of course, Destiny is a precog. She could see the future. And uh, she's about to break off some knowledge for, uh, for our Mystique. But first, we flash forward to the present, and we're on board the Orcus Satellite, one of my very favorite places. No, not not really, but uh, we'll do it anyway. Now, we learn that the Orcus Forge has been rebuilt, though it is without its mother mold. We also learn a little bit about the Orcus infrastructure, if you will. Uh, They've got defense units in Mercury's orbit, as well as a watchtower on Venus. Hopefully it's not the same watchtower that we're reading about over in Major X. Uh, There's also something called Sentinel City, where they mine and uh, will eventually construct a subterranean habitat. We next jump to later, where Director Devo is building and rebuilding and rebuilding a MacGuffin or something. (laughs) He talks about how, you know, you only get to perfection if if you redo things over and over and over again. Now, Omega Sentinel, Karima What's-Her-Face, is there with him, and she suggests that uh, the whatever it is he just built, it looks perfect. Then a courier appears at the door to take this doohickey to Dr. Gregor. Later still, that's exactly what happens. We see Dr. Gregor, who uh, I'm not sure we've actually seen her since the closing pages of X-Men number one. 
Uh, but she's still busy toiling away at whatever it is she's been toiling away at. And we'll have a better idea before the end of the issue of just what that is. From what we can see here, however, it appears to be a pink chest plate. Hmm. Let's do a roll call. Director Devo, Omega Sentinel, Dr. Greger, Mystique, Charles Xavier, and Magneto. Then we get our credits. From here, we hop all the way back to Powers of X number one, which we discussed in long form in X-Lapsed episode two. Now, Mystique is with Charles and Magneto, handing over that bit of data that she, Sabretooth, and Toad had stolen from Damage Control way back in House of X number one. And, of course, that was X-Lapsed episode one. Now, the conversation begins the same way. Mystique tries to hold Xavier up to make some more demands. Demands that we know a little bit more about having, you know, finished Hoxpox. She wants Destiny back, of course. Now, Xavier gives her the whole, you know, needs of the many, helping your fellow mutants spoo, before telling her that he has another mission for her. Of course, she will be part of the doomed Mother Mold team. That's something we already know. But we also get some new information here. Xavier has given her a Krakoan seed to plant while she's up there. You know, it's going to be a, a gateway seed so they can maybe come back, go back and forth as, uh, as they see fit. So, we jump ahead to the Mother Mold mission, where Nightcrawler has just bamfed Mystique into position. She shapeshifts to make herself appear to be an Orcus soldier, and goes ahead and plants that gateway flower in the satellite's uh, Arboretum, or whatever it is. Seems like uh, a lot of these ships have Arboretum, so I guess that's uh, fortuitous. We then resume with the scene that we already saw play out pertain pertaining to Mystique on Mother Mold. She runs into Dr. Gregor and Omega Sentinel, who, if you recall, did the whole thing where they opened a convenient trap door right under the feet gimmick, which sent Raven out into the vacuum of space. Now, her final thoughts of what this mission is really all about, to her, of course, she agreed to help Xavier in exchange for one very important thing, and of course, that is bringing back Irene. Mystique dies, but we already knew that. We jump ahead again to the resurrections of the Mother Mold Strike Force from the big shoe drop issue, X4, I'm sorry, House of X number 5. We see that scene where, you know, Cyclops is resurrected and he asks Xavier if they were successful, and just like we read back in the long ago, the professor reveals that they were. We jump to even later still, and Mystique is once again summoned by Xavier and Magneto. You see... They said they were successful, right? But here's the thing. Xavier and Magneto are like 95% sure that Mystique did what they asked her to do. You know, plant that gateway seed and all that. But since this newly resurrected Mystique is from a Cerebro backup from before the Orcus raid, they can't be totally and completely sure. So they ask Mystique to try accessing the Krakoan gateway, if she actually planted it, of course. We learn here, or it's reinstated, I, I can't remember honestly, that Krakoan gateway seeds grow in pairs, so tandem. So both sides need to be planted in order for a gateway to be functional. So, if she didn't plant the other seed, she'll slim simply pass through the portal as though she were Franklin Richards wearing one of his daddy's devices. So, Mystique shapeshifts into some Orcus gear, steps through, and boom, what do you know, it works. Turns out... That Mystique was that courier from the uh, beginning of the issue here. And so, she picks up the doohickey from Dr. Devo and delivers it to Dr. Gregor. Now, Gregor is too busy toiling to even notice. Here, Mystique gets a better look at that pink chest plate and decides to bide her time a little bit. 
That night, we see her, Mystique that is, holding a blade while standing over a sleeping Gregor. She decides, however, not to kill her. We jump back to Krakoa, where Mystique is reporting this to Xavier and Magneto. She reveals that it doesn't look as though the Mother Mold mission actually stopped the creation of Nimrod. As a matter of fact, it might have just jump-started it. Mystique tells the fellas that whatever it is that Gregor is building, it sure looks Nimrod-y. Magneto asks why Mystique didn't just take care of Gregor right then and there, to which she reminds him that, uh, hey, we got laws, don't we? Magneto's a bit incredulous here. He's kind of like, come on, you know, he, they know that these things are bunk. I mean, every, every group we talk about has, has allowances and can bend these laws as they need to. But I, I like that Mystique is kind of uh, hoisting them by their own patat, I guess. She's, she's, she's throwing it right back in their faces. Now, Xavier, he presses as to what Mystique might actually be, you know, angling for here. To which, duh, she wants Destiny back. This, this really shouldn't be a surprise to the world's greatest telepath, right? Uh, Magneto says that this wasn't the deal, which I could have sworn it was, but what do I know? Uh, Xavier tells Mystique that she's got a lot of work to do in order to gain that kind of trust. You see, she has a history of stabbing her own kind in the back, and she's not going to get her a big payout until they're sure it won't happen again. Magneto restates that they need Gregor dealt with. So Mystique, slump-shouldered and defeated, tells the fellas that she'll go back to the satellite the following day. She then tells Charles that she hates him, and uh, he doesn't seem all that surprised or bothered by this fact. He reminds her that everything they're doing, everything that they're working toward, is bigger than the both of them. We follow Mystique to a place called the Oracle, which I had to double-check an old map of Krakoa to make sure it was actually a place, and it is. As Raven descends down a spiral staircase, the discussion she had with Irene back in the flashback land plays out. Destiny tells her of a vision. A vision of an island. Not the first island, but the last island. And I'm guessing, I think Krakoa is like the third mutant island. We had Genosha, we had Utopia, and now we have got Krakoa. And uh, this vision will come to pass after Irene herself has passed on, so she will be dead at this point. Now, Mystique will be invited to this island, and she'll be made a promise, and a promise that'll be never be honored or paid off. Now, there's a reason for all this. The reason that this promise will never be honored is because they want to keep Mystique and many others in the dark, the people in charge, that is. Past Mystique does not really understand any of this. This is Mystique in the flashback. She's like, I don't get it. Destiny understands that Mystique doesn't understand, but suggests that when the time is right, she will. And when that time comes, Mystique is to, in no uncertain terms, bring Destiny back. Now, if she cannot, and if those in charge will not, Destiny instructs Mystique to burn the entire place to the ground. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll be looking at more orders number eight. But how about we talk about this? Because hot damn. <laughs> if this, is, this was a hell of an issue. Um... It feels like it's been forever since we read an issue of Hox or Pox, and then here we are, suddenly right back in the thick of it, right? We're actually in between pages of that series, and, uh, man, it's, uh, it feels so good, doesn't it? Now, even in writing my notes for this episode, I, I felt like I was right back in the first week of September when I was just trying to, like, get this little project off the ground here. 
I was terrified that I was getting things wrong. I was I, I had these feelings of like uncertainty and trepidation. I was worried that I was missing or misreporting key details from pretty much damn near every scene in the Hoxpox books. I thought I was just I thought things were going over my head left and right, and I felt the same way here, and that's a good thing because it got me right back into that mode. And boy, I I just had so much fun doing this one here. Let's talk a little bit about what we learned here. Okay, now, some things we already knew. We already knew that Mystique has been doing everything she's been doing up to this point for one reason, right? She wants to bring Destiny back. She wants her wife back. We also know that, per Mora, that under absolutely no circumstances is that to be allowed. We got those two things down. Up to this point, we know that Mystique has gone on the Mother Mold mission where she perished, and upon resurrection, she was installed as a chair on the Quiet Council. That's what we knew. Here, we find out quite a bit more. Mystique was given a secondary task while on the Mother Mold mission, planting that Krakoan Gateway seed, which she did. I got a question, though. Mystique's a shapeshifter, right? She could, and in fact did, shapeshift into an Orcus soldier to do this mission, right? Why in the world would she revert back to Mystique? Was there a power dampener at play that I forgot about? And I say that only half-joking, because for all I know, that might have been a key plot point that I've just forgotten. Question. Is this a sign that the Mother, the mother Mold mission was always supposed to end with the Strike Force perishing? Was this intended as a one-way trip from the get-go? Because, I mean, let's be honest here, self-preservation definitely doesn't seem like a priority here, does it? It really doesn't make much sense to me why Mystique wouldn't just stay shapeshifted. Or maybe I'm just thinking too hard. I tend to do that, especially when we're tying things back to Hoxpox. Now, Mystique's second trip to the Orcus Forge is pretty interesting, as it confirmed that the initial me- mission might have actually kicked off the series of events that will ultimately lead to one of the doomed futures. And as I began reading this, and I got my first glimp- glimpse of that pink chest plate, I got kind of weirded out. You know, things started to fall into place, and I, and I smirked a bit, right? Of course, it wasn't confirmed as being Nimrod until later on, but this certainly telegraphed that, uh, that reveal and did so in the best possible way, because it's just like, it, it really, I don't know, it was like a light switch turned on. It was like, uh-oh, <laughs> something's going down. Now, Mystique refusing to deal with Gregor in, until Destiny is brought back is, uh, is very interesting. It's very much the classic, you know, rock and hard place sort of situation. Um, Xavier and Magneto, who... They come across as such massive pricks here. Uh, They need Mystique to get in there and do the dirty work that only someone with her abilities and training can do. And they've got this carrot to dangle, but from the looks of it, they never intend to allow Raven to get a bite of it. I think it's easy to assume that uh, the Professor and Magneto are underestimating Mystique here. They really seem to think that they've got her wrapped around their little fingers, and she'll continue to make sacrifices and be a good soldier for a promise that they never intend to make good on. But really, how long can that possibly last, right? Um, Or, I mean, we know that Mora doesn't want Destiny back, but we do have evidence that Eric and Charles have gone against Mora's wishes before. I mean, they've done so in the past. They brought Sinister in when Mora wasn't really keen on that. And uh, Mora suggested they, they they very well might do that again at some point, which is very interesting. It, it adds another layer to this story, 
where maybe maybe it isn't such a self-fulfilling, easy for me to say, sort of thing here, sort of destiny, no pun intended, where they won't bring her back. We don't know that yet. So let's talk a little bit about destiny. Let's talk about her instructions to Mystique that we closed off with. If she's unable to bring her back, or if those in control refuse to bring her back, Mystique is to burn the entire place to the ground, the entire island, which is a pretty frightening thought. And it's like the first time that we see some smoke to perhaps signal a revolutionary fire. I mean, just last episode, we talked about X-Force number 7, which uh, we talked a little bit about the collectivist nature of Krakoa, right? How the needs of the many are being weighed against those of the individual. It's made pretty clear here by Xavier's comments about what they're building being bigger than both of them, that there's some truth to that. It's getting harder and harder to view Xavier as anything less than a villain in all this, though. It's uh, very dismissive of the individual, which uh, I'm, I'm wondering if that's an overtone we're supposed to be noticing. I, I, I almost assume it has to be. Um, but we'll we'll get there, I guess, when we when we get there, if we get there. So... Here we are. We're seeing some dissonance, right? We got Colossus and Domino. They're uh, they're having like a more passive dissonance, and now we have Mystique with a potentially incendiary, literally, sort of way, right? So we have these questions: Will she deal with Gregor? Will she kill Doctor Gregor before the Nimrod thing happens? Will she destroy the Nimrod prototype? Will she go to the satellite, just come back and say she did without doing it? It's a lot of meat on this bone, and uh, I really can't wait to see it play out. We get more questions. This is great. This is just like Hoxpox here, where you get to you get to ask yourself all these questions, and uh, for better or for worse, you get to listen to me work my uh, work my way through it and give you my hot takes. So, uh, questions: Are these futures inevitable? I had asked during our read through of Hoxpox if there had ever been a moral life cycle where the X-Men were able to successfully take down the Mother Mold, the Orcus Mother Mold. I assumed that the successful mission drastically altered the trajectory of the doomed future. Here, here we're finding out that, that that wasn't the case at all. I mean, at least in theory, considering it looks as though Nimrod is going to happen one way or another. And then we have the Mora scene in Powers of X number 6, and I questioned... Like, why she had to remain in hiding, right? Because, like, hey, we changed the future. Now, that's a little bit clearer. You know, it's not crystal clear or anything, but it makes a bit more sense as to why Mora would need to stay in hiding um, to, I don't know, prevent a future. Or just prevent people from knowing that there are strings being pulled behind the scenes. Um, Another question. What was that doohickey that Mystique couriered from Devo to Gregor? And does it even matter? Uh, or was that just a clever MacGuffin to facilitate Mystique heading into Gregor's lab? Could be. Uh, big question here. What else might Mystique know? Let's look at Destiny here. Destiny's been dead a long friggin' time, right? She's been dead since Uncanny X-Men number 255. That was uh, 1988 or 1989. So, long time. 30 years in real life. Uh, I don't know how long it is in Marvel time, but for us, 30 years. Long time. And a lot of stuff has happened in the interim. So, if Destiny was already able to foresee Krakoa and the whole Dawn of X landscape being a thing, what else might she have seen? What else might she have told Mystique about? 
Is it in any way possible that Mystique already knows that Mora's there? Is she angling? I mean, this is this is very interesting stuff. It opens up a lot of potential uh, little story spurs that uh, I hope get explored. And I mean, let's reel back just a bit here, and we'll think about Destiny for a minute. There was a whole volume of X-Men, Extreme X-Men, dedicated to putting together a team to track down Destiny's diaries. They've since been destroyed, but I mean, they, they did exist. And if she wrote anything about the rise of Krakoa, there's a chance that other people also know. I mean, we didn't know up until this point that Destiny knew what was happening, right? So I guess the potential big question or the big takeaway here is who's playing who? Is is Mystique like just biting biting her you know biting her tongue here or you know chewing on the side of her mouth trying to play good soldier while she knows what's going on behind the scenes, um, or is it you know just is it a, a matter of like what we see is what we get and she doesn't know? I don't know a lot of questions which is great. What that that's that's what I love about these uh, these very uh, these very dense sort of issues where we have. So many ideas, so many concepts just percolating and bubbling. It's awesome. Whatever the case, whether she knows or doesn't, whether she goes back or she doesn't, whether she burns the place down or does whatever, I loved this issue. So many questions, so many half answers, and a whole lot to look forward to as we continue. Gotta say, the one-off, vignette nature of this X-Men volume has finally paid off for me. And uh, really, just such a wonderful book. Um... If you are not following the Dawn of X books, if if you're and, and for whatever reason you're still listening to this program, well, thank you. But if you had dropped the Dawn of X books, I'd say pick up X Men number six because it fits in with the Hoxpox stuff. If you were reading Hoxpox but but left during Docs, grab X Men number six because it fits right in. It's it's similar in tone. It's similar in just. Shoes dropping, you know Really, really awesome issue Thought it was fantastic Which Makes it even harder To do our uh, Dawn of X Wave 1 Number 6 power rankings (laughs) Which is what we're up to next Really, really hard to rank And that's in a good way We've got like an embarrassment of riches Of good books We had three awesome issues Two very good issues and Fallen Angels, of course. Um, now, if I were going to rank these things, uh, you know, it's hard for me to put anything but this issue of X Men in the number one spot. And uh, and I mean, I'm looking at the uh, the numbers right now, and I don't have X Men in the number one spot. But after discussing it with you all right now, I almost got to move it. I got to move it. Top book of the of the number sixes is X Men. Second is Marauders. Third is X-Force, which was a really strong issue. Fourth was New Mutants, which closed out our story on the farm. Fifth is Excalibur, which sort of, kind of ended our time in Otherworld for a little bit. And uh, holding up the uh, the anchor of the uh, Dawn of X line is uh, still, <laughs> and, and what is it, the winner and the reigning champion, <laughs> Fallen Angels, number six. So... X-Men, Marauders, X-Force, New Mutants, Excalibur, Fallen Angels. That's my power rankings for the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 6s. And I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on this uh, this very interesting and very uh, very strong run of books here. 
But uh, before we go, we do have one letter to touch on here. And this is from our friend Al Sedano, and he's talking about Excalibur number one. He says, so, this was Excalibur number one. Okay, my first thought is, who in the hell is this trinary person, or trinary person? Are they new, or did they show up in the last few years? I really hope something about them is said in the next few issues, but just in case they don't, could you give me the skinny on them? Well, no, I can't. (laughs) Uh, Trinary or Trinary was a brand new character to me as well, and I'd never seen her before. And oddly, if I'm remembering right, I don't think we've seen Hyde and her hair ever since this. Um, I think the last time when we did see her here, I did look her up. And I found out that she first appeared in one of the color books. I, I want to say red, since that's one I haven't read a single issue of just yet. So yeah, she's newish. Uh, what her story is, eh, I really couldn't say. Maybe we'll see her again. I don't I don't know. <laughs> it feels weird that they'd introduce her and then just not use her. for. Uh, I mean, we're going on to the fourth or fifth month of these Dawn of X books. And uh, yeah, we saw her once. Uh, Al continues. As for the rest of the issue, it was okay. Not horrible, but not great. It's definitely my least favorite out of the issues I've read so far. And yeah, I was pretty much, or very much actually, in the very same boat. It's just kind of there. And it's like a weird dissonance for this issue, because on one hand, it was really nice to be reacquainted with some familiar faces, right? I mentioned it then, it's like, hey, it's Rogue, it's Gambit, it's cool to see these characters again. It's been so long since I've seen them. But... I feel like there's too much attention paid to the other world stuff for it to kind of actually stick the landing. Just wait until you get the Fallen Angels, though, my friend, because uh, that'll probably bump Excalibur up a notch or two in your power rankings for the first issues. Uh, Al continues, I'm hoping it improves. I like the general idea. With this new concept of a mutant society, it makes sense to have books focusing on different aspects. And since this is a world with magic, why not? And yeah, it does make sense. Uh, Just, like... In practice, and as it pertains to Otherworld and Camelot, to me, it's kind of dull. And if you continue uh, working your way through this series, you might find, like I did, that it overstays its welcome. It's, uh, it feels unending. <laughs> and even now, um, where, we're, where we're up to, I think, issue 7 or 8, we're not in Otherworld anymore. I think we, ha- we spent like a page or two in Otherworld last issue, so... We're not really in Otherworld, but it's still kind of there, and I'm always worried that we're going to get another world issue. It's, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they'll break away at some point. Probably after uh, 10 X of 10s. Now, Al wraps up with, I guess I'll see where I rank this issue after I read the rest of the number ones. Oh, and mutants were first, as far as I can remember, called Witchbreed in Neil Gaiman's 1602. And I think that's definitely right. Uh, I want to say that a few people have, have reached out to remind me of that. Um, to be honest, I only read 1602 that the one time when it was coming out. And to uh, continue being honest, it bored me to absolute tears. Um, and I feel like had that book not had the words Neil or Gaiman on it, nobody would care. <laughs> I don't think it would be remembered quite as fondly these days. When Neil does a book... Reviewers are very polite because it's Neil. Uh, but 1602 to me was just so dull, and I expected so much because because uh, it was a big deal to have Neil Gaiman there, and also I am a giant mark for Miracle Man and how 1602 was a part of that 
you know, that Miracles and Marvels uh, deal that uh, Neil had gone with uh, with Casada and company, I was like doubly excited because everything that I bought was in theory helping to, you know, get the rights to Miracle Man back. And of course, they got them back and did nothing with it. Um, well, they, they reproduced some things, but uh, we're still waiting on the uh, the Silver Age there, Neil. When are you, when are you going to do that? We've, we've only been waiting 30 years, so... I know, I know, I, that you have other things to do. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Witchbreed uh, stems from uh, from 1602. I think that's that's got to be the case there. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Al. I'm so happy that you are continuing through with the Dawn of X books, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts on the uh, the upcoming books, because the first issues, uh, let's see, what do you have left? You've got New Mutants, which was a lot of fun. You've got X-Force, which had a crazy cliffhanger. And you've got Fallen Angels, which, uh, yeah, you got Fallen Angels. And uh, <laughs> I really want to hear your thoughts on that. Now, if anybody else has thoughts they'd like to share with me about Fallen Angels or anything, in fact, you could do so very easily. You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics or by the, old, uh, the old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes, blog posts, and a whole bunch of stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could find the dedicated X-Lapsed page at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to talk about X-Men comics, you can go to our Facebook group, 90s X-Men, and uh, you can find the entire Chris and Reggie archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where there's many, many hours for your many, many, or I guess few ears. You only have two of them, and... Uh, I don't think there's very many people looking for stuff, so a few years, a lot of hours. I figure it'll work. So that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Had a wonderful time talking about this very, very wonderful issue. I hope you all enjoyed hearing it, and if you are reading along, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I'd love to hear if you did or if you didn't. But uh, until next time, just one more giant thank you for sharing your time with me this fine day, and uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.